Welcome to This Stuff Works, episode 10. We talk to real leaders about how they've taken the principles of extreme ownership and applied them to their life in order to solve their problems and win. And today with us, we have an awesome leader, Kevin Sear, who is uh, an inspector with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And uh, Kevin, we've got a chance to work with you for uh, several years now. Uh, when we were first introduced through uh, Extreme Ownership Academy, our, our online training platform. And uh, it's been awesome to see your growth as a leader, to hear your feedback about how this stuff is working for you. I know you're up there leading a SWAT team. You guys are getting after all the time. You're in the action, dealing with some of those dangerous situations that law enforcement can deal with. And uh, it's amazing to hear how you've taken and applied these principles to your world. Well, thanks for having me, Leif. Um, like I say, I show from the rooftops about this stuff because it has been nothing short of transformational for me. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to come and share that. It's awesome to have you here, man. This is, uh, to, let's, let's, let's just talk a little bit about your background. So you're based in Vancouver and you're in charge of a team of 63 people. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So t tell us a little bit about what it's like to be part of uh, the SWAT team for uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Yeah, so policing in Canada works a little bit different than policing down here. Um, so we're with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is a federal agency, but we don't just have a federal mandate. Um, we also have the provincial mandate as well as this, the uh, municipal mandate. So it, that would be like, imagine if, you know, this, uh, the state of Texas called up the FBI and said, hey, you know, can you be our state police as well and do our highway patrol? And a city called up and say, hey, could you, you know, FBI, could you guys do our city policing as well? So there's a lot of advantages to that model. It's quite a bit different in, than in, in the States, but, you know, you get to bounce around a lot to different jobs without changing agencies. Uh, and we also have a large economy of scale. So we've got a really large footprint. So our team uh, covers, like I said, like the federal mandates, we've got the water, we've got the airports, uh, we've got uh, some counterterrorism stuff, uh, we've got uh, transnational drug smuggling, uh, we also have the provincial mandates. We're up in the rural areas, supporting our teams that are that are in that area. And then we've got the city stuff. So we serve a urban population of 2.3 million people, um, you know, supporting I think around 4,000 police officers in the area when they when they need a hand with something. And it sounds like you guys have stayed busy. <laughs> yeah, we run about right now. We're about 300 calls a year, which is you. Know, we, that's a that's that's a pretty fair clip. That's awesome. Yeah, well, you, you guys are getting after it, and. Uh, it's, it's clear that you're, you're taking these principles and you've built these principles into the culture of your team. Um, and I, I look forward to diving into the details of, of how you've done that and what kind of impact that you've seen. But before, let, let's just talk about your background, how you grew up, how, how did you get into law enforcement? Uh, what, what drew you to that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, you know, my mom, you know, is moving out of her house and she gives me that old box of stuff that she kept from when you were a kid, you know, that no one actually wants. And I opened it and there's like something from when I was in grade three, a little you know, like the career interest test and they had a police officer on there. I, of course, I don't remember wanting that or doing that, but like ever since I was a kid, I just, I just wanted to be a cop. I wanted to be a cop. And the other thing I was really interested in is like special operations, you know, like that special forces kind of commando stuff. I thought that stuff was, was really cool. Um, you know, so I, I grew up in the East coast of Canada, um, small town, uh, you know, three siblings, uh, just like kind of normal eighties kid stuff. Uh, when I was finishing high school, I was trying to decide what to do. And I wanted to explore the military, but at that time it was mid-90s. The Canadian military were 
well, kind of like law enforcement today. They're vilified in the media, and it and it really turned me off uh, of that opportunity, which is too bad because now that I, I get to see it, there, there would have been a lot of great opportunities there for me. Um, I wanted to be a police officer, but at that time, again, very different than today, you couldn't get in. Like, you would have to apply and wait for a few years, and you'd get deferred, and you'd have to apply again. Uh, so I said, okay, well, I need a, I need a plan. So I went to, to get some education while I, while I waited that for, uh, for that to happen, to come through. And so when that did come, come through, uh, what would that look like for you? So I had applied. I was in university. I did my mathematics degree. Um, and so, and then I was, so I did that as an undergrad. And then I, had a, uh, I was doing my master's of software engineering. And it was like the first week of school because the Mounties didn't call. Like, and I knew like, I might not get in. I wasn't, you know, I, I was a good applicant, but there's a long lineup and I just might not get in. So I had started just the first week of this software engineering degree and the, I got a call from my recruiter saying, Hey man, we got a, we got a spot for you at depot, which is our, our training site. You know, it's in, you know, it's like three weeks from now. Do you want it in? So I, I left all my computer engineering books on the desk, wrote an email to my professor, said, Hey man, I'm out. And, uh, I went to basic training. Why, why was it uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police? Like that's what you wanted to be a part of at the federal level. I mean, you didn't want to apply at the local level. Was that, that, what, what, what drove you to that? So the, the town I grew up in, they, that's who policed our town. So to me, that was what policing was. It was the Mounties. Gotcha. Um, it's a, you know, it's a pretty storied agency. You know, everyone knows the Mounties, the Red Surge, you know, the Dudley Do-Right kind of thing. It's just, it's, it permeates a lot of Canadian culture. And to me, that was, like, that's just what you did. And plus, at that time, there's no internet. So it's not like I could look up, you know, what are the best police agencies in Canada? There's lots of fantastic police agencies in Canada doing different cities or different provinces. That was just what it was to me. So I could, and I could walk down the street and, and apply right at the local station. So you know, it's kind of by default, but, uh, but it worked out very well. Now, is, is, is the term Mountie, is that, uh, is, is that a positive term if someone's calling you a Mountie? Or is, it, uh, is, that, is that taken in kind of a, a negative fashion? No, that's, been, that's a colloquialism that's, yeah, well, it's Mounted Police, right? So it's the, it's the Mounties. I don't know, we've been calling that probably 100 years. Like, the agency's 150 years old, so I probably called that for 149 of those or something like that. But. I think my first exposure to uh, the, the, this idea of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or the Mounties was was uh, in the movie Untouchables, where they, yes. they come across the border <laughs> to, like, uh, link up with Elliot Ness and his crew and, like, save the day. And I was like, oh, Mounties. Pretty much it, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so so you, get, you get the call, you go to the academy, uh, and now you're a Mountie. What is, and how does your career go from there? Yeah, so when you sign up, it's, it's different now. Now they'll give you a better idea of where you're going. But at that time, like, hey, man, sign here. And when you graduate, we'll tell you where you're going. And you've got no control over it. Like, you, you, you don't know. You could be going up to the Arctic. You could be going to the Toronto, the big city. You don't know. Uh, and they, so they posted me to British Columbia. I grew up on the East Coast. They posted me to the West Coast and Northern West Coast, like this small little town. There's like nine police officers live there. Uh, it was a very busy place, and I learned to work independently, which is a, an excellent skill to start your career with. And I was just like a regular patrol guy. While I was there, they had um, like, a, we call it emergency response team, but I'll just say SWAT, just because everyone knows what a SWAT team is. So they had a SWAT team covering that local area, but it was like a part-time gig. So they would come in if you needed them. And I remember I called them in because I'd, I'd gotten my first drug bust. And it was a guy who was growing marijuana, uh, and he had a big like compound, a big fence. And I was like, well, I don't know how we're going to get in there. So I called the SWAT team. And so they came in. I remember I sat in on their briefing, and they, you know, they left, and they had their MP5s. And this is like 2002, and their body armor and their helmet. And like the, the equipment is almost laughably primitive by today's standards. But I was like, that 
that is, I'm in, I'm all in, I need to do this. Like I, it didn't matter what it was going to take. I was going to do that. And so I ended up getting on that team. Uh, and, but that was a part-time gig. So they would send me to training for a couple days, a, a month, and we'd just get a handful of calls. We weren't that busy. So it was kind of like a taste, but I knew there could be more and I was, and I was hungry for more. Um, but by then I transferred. So they only keep in those small posts for a small time. So I transferred down to a larger center and I got involved in a lot of major crime work. So I was doing a lot of kidnappings, homicides, uh, child molesters. I did actually spend a few years arresting those guys. Um, did a lot of drug work, a lot of narcotics. And kind of my career just took a, a, a different path for a little while um, until there was an opportunity to go back. So Right on. So you, you ended up in Vancouver uh, on the team that you now currently lead. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I had promoted, again, I went down for a major crime. Uh, and when I kind of got my fill of that, uh, and I could have kept going, there was great career aspirations, but I'd, every time I walked by the SWAT team locker and I knew all the guys and, you know, they're in the gym and they're kind of giving me the gears cause they know I've got the training. I could come on. Like I've, I've got the check mark. There's, I, I just have to transfer over. Um, they're kind of giving it to me a little bit like, Hey man, you know, you should, you should come over. And it, it just pained me every time I walked by the armored vehicle. And so finally I was like, you know what, I'm just going to give up what I thought, give up some career opportunities. Cause the major crime, Hey, that's a lot of promotions and I can go do the SWAT stuff. I want to go scratch that itch. And I, and, and so I was able to do that. And then what, what was it that, uh, that led you back to, to leading this team that you've led? How, how long have you been charged with this team now? Uh, it's a little over three years now. So, yeah. So I went to the team and I was on the team for, uh, I think about three years, um, and then I ended up transferring off. Uh, one of the reasons I transferred off, my wife was uh, sick with breast cancer at the time, and it was just a lot of commitment to the team, and I needed just kind of something different. Um, she's doing great now, so uh, that, that's fantastic. We made it through that, but it was just it was a bit too much to be doing that high-risk work, you know, plus stuff at the home front. So I had to make a change, plus um, there was an opportunity to get my commission. So it's not like in the military where you come in at a commissioned officer rank and then get trained every police officer starts at the front line and you work your way up, you know, corporal, sergeant, staff sergeant, and our lieutenant equivalent would be inspector. So I left the team to, to take my commission and uh, worked some headquarters jobs and some, some policy jobs, which, man, they're not the sexiest thing in the world, but you learn skills that, that have helped me more than I thought they would, that's for sure. Gives you some insight into <laughs> how people are making decisions, what kind of pressure they're actually under, um, always, I, I felt that as well for you know my military career when, when when I was promoted up the ranks and you get to kind of see when you I think you get an appreciation for what your leadership is dealing with on a regular basis and what kind of pressure they're under and the decisions they have to make and the kind of information they need. So I can't imagine that's not a, a helpful thing to be able to see their perspective. Uh, t totally. I mean, you wonder why you feel like they're nitpicking you, and it's they're not nitpicking you. It's you failed to give them the information that they need. So now that I, well, I was able to see that perspective, it, it just made lead, leading up so much easier. Well, it sounds like you correctly prioritized your family, you know, over, uh, over work, which is the 100% the right call there, um, you know, for a time like that. And, uh, and so what, how, was this, how was this opportunity to come back and lead this team offered to you? Yeah, so I uh, always had my eye on it because the, the OIC is, that, is an inspector rank. I knew if I promoted one more time, like, I would never have that chance. So I kind of, you know, didn't put my name in for any promotions. I was just, I was kind of waiting patiently. And then the guy I was waiting to leave, I mean, everyone leaves eventually, but the previous OIC, uh, he ended up getting promoted and transferring. So, you know, the boys called me and said, Hey man, uh, 
you know, Andy's leaving and, uh, you know, you should come back, you know, you should come back. It'd be awesome to have a guy who's been on the team, who understands the pressures, understands what, what the guys need. We'd love you to come back. So, uh, it didn't take any convincing. Like, uh, I just went, it was, just, it was literally dream job, dream job. Like I get to lead you know, those guys, yeah, they're a world-class police special operations team. And, and I was asked to come back and, and help them in, in what way I could. It's, what an honor. Can't say no to that. So you step into the officer in charge or OIC position there as, as the leader of that team, 63 guys. Um, is, uh, what, what, was it, what was that like? Because they wanted me back, it was all high fives to begin with, right? It was, it was just riding the wave of elation. And that team, it's got a, it, it, it always has had a healthy culture. And one of the cultures it has is it has a desire for continuous improvement. And so, you know, I could have sat back and done nothing. And three years later, the team would still be success and we'd still be high five and no problem. The team had a desire to improve. We had some weaknesses that we knew we had to address. And we had goals that we wanted to, we wanted to be, like it is our goal, it's, it, it's right on our wall. We want to be, without question, a world-class team. Like we want to be up with, you know, synonymous with, with anyone out there. Well, we knew it was going to take a lot of work to get there. Um, it's funny because what was my dream job? I started to realize very quickly that I did not have the leadership skills to make it happen. And I came, I squandered, I came in with a lot of leadership capital. The goal, those guys are all my friends. I've known them for 10 years. We've done a lot of ops together. They wanted me back. Within three months, I probably squandered 95% of that leadership capital that I had been just gifted on the way in because I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know what I was doing. And this is common in law enforcement because I had received zero leadership training uh, at that time, zero. So now I'm put in charge of 63 guys doing 300 high risk ops a year and, and I don't have the skills to do it. And I still remember, I remember coming home at night from my dream job being exhausted and it being, it wasn't my dream. It was a nightmare. It was, it was awful. And I was like, how long am I going to be able to stay here? I'm going to be lucky if I make it a year. Like if I can make it a year, you know, maybe I can promote it. I'm starting to look for, for exits because, and I started making excuses. These guys are too hard to manage. You know, my boss has unreasonable exp expectations. You know, our budget's not big enough. Like all these problems were someone else's problem. And, you know, this wasn't fair to ask me to do these things. But, uh, you know, it, it, it turned another way. So how long were you, how long were you in law enforcement for at this point before you stepped into that role? Uh, about 19 years. So you've been in it for 19 years at this point. Now you're stepping into the officer in charge of 63 guys uh, in a significant leadership role uh, of a SWAT team for a major city uh, and in the, the 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 area, and you have zero leadership training. Yeah. So look, part of that's my fault. There was a couple courses I could have availed myself to um, that I frankly I dodged. Um, you know, they're week long courses. So you know, is that really going to move the needle a whole lot over the long term? Probably not. I don't think so. Um, but part of it, you know, the other thing is, is in policing, because you don't come in as an officer, you're expected like, well, Hey, you were, you know, we called a constable and then a corporal and then a sergeant. You were expected to on the job, learn these leadership traits. And hopefully you had a good mentor that taught you these things. Um, and, and I did have some good mentors, but again, I don't think that's sufficient. And I was of the opinion that, Hey, I, I had a saying at the time and I adopted this from someone. I really liked it. I said, there's no wrong way to be right. And that, you know, I'm a, I'm a reasonably competent guy. I'm smart enough. Uh, as long as I'm doing the thing that is correct, it doesn't matter how I do it. And I'm just going to power my way through it. And uh, one guy, he gave me a good analogy. One of my 
previous bosses. He gave me a hockey analogy. He says, Kevin, he says, you skate with your elbows up. He's like, you know, you, yeah, you score a lot of goals. You score a decent amount of goals, but he's like, turn around and look at the ice behind you. Like all there is is people with, you know, chiclets out because you've you know, knocked a bunch of teeth out getting there and no one's going to want to play with you. And I kind of like, you know, yeah, yeah, but I'm calm. Like I get the job done. Like I'm aggressive. That's enough. And, uh, and it wasn't enough. It, and it wasn't until I hit that challenge of that team and that ops tempo and that level of risk exposure that my that this gap was was laid to bear for all to see and it was really obvious it was really really obvious it's it's embarrassingly obvious how did, how did you come about uh, being introduced to extreme ownership and what we do at echelon front i think someone sent me the good video it was like kind of like you know a few years ago it was like jocko came on the scene and was like oh this jocko guy's awesome and and i read extreme ownership and i took it out of context so i took it to mean exactly what i wanted it to mean and I think I remember like two lines from it from the first time I read it was default aggressive. It was like, hey, that sounds great to me. Like these guys, I like the, I like the cut of this guy's jib. Like default aggressive, that's, that's my language. And then I remember your, you know, you wrote, there's, uh, there's only two measures that matter, effective or ineffective. And I was like, well, copy that. Like I'm effective, so it doesn't even matter. Like I'm not ineffective. I meet the measure that matters. So it completely went over my head. And I'll give you a story about how bad it went over my head is I was in a, in a meeting with some senior officers and we were acquiring a piece of equipment, it was a very expensive piece of equipment and it was being held up in the procurement process. And it was very frustrating, my team needed it. So I said to the senior officer, I said, I decided I would quote this book, Extreme Ownership. I said, well, ma'am, there's only two measures that matter, effective and ineffective, and guess which one you are being. And I left that meeting, I'm like, if Leif Babin could see me, he'd probably high five me right now because I just delivered. I would, I would not high five. I, I was pretty sure you were going to though. <laughs> I was so proud of myself. I was like, I just served up some extreme ownership. Uh, we didn't get the piece of equipment for a while. So it wasn't, like I wasn't the one being effective. You might've been the last person to get the piece of equipment. Uh, <laughs> I might've been. Yeah. You know, what's, but, what's amazing about that, Kevin is, is it's a really common thing. It's a very common thing. And I think we tend to take, you know, what we want to hear from things, uh, you know, whether it's whether it's listening to a podcast or reading a book. And I think there, there's there's a, I mean, you're obviously a smart guy or a very competent guy. I mean, you, you have a you have a law degree as well, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you're a well-educated guy. I mean, you, you're you're uh, you should be all the things that people want in a leader. And yet, when, you, when you're focused on, you know, what does winning look like for you? What's winning that is single engagement and showing someone they're actually wrong, you know, or like, hey, I got the job done. It doesn't matter that I crushed this entire team to get the job done or really stepped on these, uh, my, my peers in this other department over here. We got the job done. What's the, that, that's what winning looks like. And then, it, you know, what, what, we've, what we've done with so many leaders that have, uh, because there are people that interpret things that way and, and, to take a step back, that detachment piece to say, what does winning look like actually in the long term? We're not we're not talking about the tactical immediate problem you're dealing with. What does a long-term strategic victory look like? And it's, if you're not building good relationships with people, if you don't have rapport on your team, if you don't actually um, subordinate your ego you know, to others and, and let it be their idea or run with their plan, then, then you're not going to be successful in the long run. It doesn't matter how effective you are at accomplishing this particular task. I certainly work with people in the military that – that uh, they might get the mission done, but uh, they couldn't get a single person to 
you know, to, to, to join their team voluntarily ever again after that, because they crushed everyone and, and, and basically just pissed the whole team off, uh, being micromanaged or wh whatever it may be. And, and yet they thought they were doing a job as a leader. So I think that's something that we have encountered a lot is people that they, they, even if they read the book or even if they listen to some podcasts, they don't fully understand the depth of what we're talking about, what it actually means to take extreme ownership, what it means to put the team first and the mission first and implement the laws of combat. Um, and uh, it sounds like uh, that, that, was, that was a wake-up call for you. I'm oh, no, it took more than that to wake me up. Yeah, no, it, was, uh, it wasn't that instant. Like, it was like, it was just over time. Yeah, that wake-up call came of just increased frustration, right? Just this realizing that I wasn't winning, I wasn't getting things done. And... Um, it's funny. So I don't know how I got on the email list, but I somehow got on the email list and signed up for a first responder session that you guys run on the Tuesdays, one, one Tuesday a month for free, which is awesome. And I went to, I think three of those and I thought like, well, how similar is this to the main session? Do you know what stopped me from signing up from the main session initially? Initially, because I was embarrassed. I didn't want anyone to know. So I actually started to doing it in private and which is kind of like a weird thing to say, right? But by, by main session, you mean our, our Extreme Ownership Live sessions that we run every week? Yeah, the yep. Extreme Ownership Academy. We, yep. Yeah, the Extreme Ownership Academy, which is, you know, the Monday, the online sessions, the, 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 the Monday calls. I didn't tell anyone I was doing that for maybe two or three months because I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. Well, there's two reasons. The first is I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I, I had to admit to myself that I did not have the innate skills that I needed to be successful in the job. And, uh, and it's funny, like, I thought that, admitting that embarrassment would somehow erode my leadership capital. You know, like everyone would see like, wait a second, oh, he's not good enough to do this job. He had to actually sign up for this like remedial train. Like what, what is this? Like who's this, he's, he's going to lead us? Like, are you kidding me? And it's actually the opposite, right? So when, guy, when I started talking about it more, guys realized, I think that, hey, here's a guy who's working on his weaknesses and he's coachable. And like, it's so silly to, to look back now because when, when we do our selection program for our new officers, which has like an 80% failure rate, one of the things we look for is coachable people. It's like some guy can show up and he can, you know, look like Jean-Claude Van Damme and run the gun like John Wick. And then he eventually is going to hit something that he can't do. And we try to coach him through it and he doesn't want to hear it. That guy's not going to be successful. We don't take him. We like people who are coachable. So if that's the appropriate culture we want for guys coming onto the team, why isn't it the right attitude for the guy in charge of the team? It's a complete disconnect. And I think my ego just didn't want to make the journey into that comfort or out of my comfort zone and into the growth zone. So yeah, I, I, I did it, you know, kind of privately. And I, I think the second thing that, I think the second thing that prevented me from signing up right away is I, I was like, well, I don't want the guys to see that I'm using like, you know, quote unquote leadership moves on them because they're going to feel insulted and they're going to feel like I'm manipulating them and just like kind of trick them. And, and then everything's going to backfire. And uh, eventually I learned that, you know, all of this training is not about changing other people's behavior. It was 100% about changing my own behavior. Like, like that's it. And it's about changing my behavior in a way that builds genuine relationships based on increasing trust, increasing respect, and, you know, increasing someone's control and autonomy. So, okay, who's going to get insulted about that? Like, oh, this guy is, you know, <laughs> this guy's treating me better and showing me more respect because he learned it from that training. Like, like no one's going to feel insulted by that. So it, it's just funny how my mind had built up these completely fictitious barriers to prevent me from kind of engaging in the training. It probably delayed me probably six months in total, just kind of getting over those mental hurdles, which I don't know, it's, 
It's almost embarrassing admitting it to you, Leif, to be honest, but I, I think it's probably pretty but common. You, you shouldn't be embarrassed because it's super common. Look, I, I've struggled with all these things as well and still struggle with stuff all the time. I mean, this is, you know, as you said, leadership is a skill. It's a skill that you have to learn and work on all the time. And I think a lot of people don't see leadership like that. They see leadership as something you're kind of born with or not born with, or you just kind of, you, you step into this role and you either, you know, succeed or don't succeed. Uh, and, and the reality is it absolutely is a skill. It's a skill that you have to learn and develop and, and work on all the time. And if you're not consistently learning it, then that's, that's a, that's a, you're not going to get better. And like any skill, if you're not working on that skill, it's going to atrophy. So you're going to lose that skill. So I, I think it's when, when people recognize that. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a total game changer for them. Okay. Now I actually need to dedicate more the time and effort to developing my leadership skills so that I can be successful in what I'm trying to do. And, and not only for the benefit of me, for the benefit of my team and everyone around me, you know, in, in my, my life as well. And you know, it's interesting. You talk about the barriers of extreme ownership. These are mistakes I made when I stepped into leadership positions, I need to show people I'm in charge. I can't admit I don't have all the answers. It's, it's a very, very common thing that we see. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I've made all these same mistakes that you're talking about, all these same mistakes where I kind of feel like I can't, you know, I've, I can't show someone I have, I have to dictate everything. I, I it has to be my plan. I have to show them that I've, uh, that, that I've, uh, you know, I can't show, show weakness. And the reality is, you know, when you step into a leadership position like that, people know that you don't have all the answers. People know that you don't have it figured out because no one does. And so you're either lying about it, um, you know, or, or, or you're, you're and pretending and, and they can certainly see through that, um, you know, or you can actually just be honest to say like, Hey, I don't have all the answer. I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm going to, I have an open mind. I'm going to lean on my team. I'll be open to their ideas. Um, and when you make mistakes, something that we often talk about is who knows about it when, who, who on your team knows about it when you make mistakes as a leader? And the answer is everybody. Everybody knows about that. So you might as well just own that. And, and, and are they going to gain respect for you if you cast blame and make excuses and don't take ownership? Are, you actually, are they going to gain respect for you if you actually take ownership of, of that mistake? Say, here's what I'm going to do to fix that going forward. You know, I'm sorry this happened. I see how that impacts the team you know, uh, negatively. And here's what I'm going to do to fix it. And if you do that, if you do the latter, people are going to actually gain respect for you. you know, if you think about the people that you work with, that, that, that didn't do that, you, you of course lose respect for, uh, for those people. So it's actually the opposite of what our ego kind of tricks us into believing that like, I, I, I can't admit that I don't have all the answers. I can't admit that I made a mistake. You know, I can't admit that I actually need to learn some leadership skills and grow. Um, and yet if you do those things, people gain respect for you rather than, than, than lose it. Yeah. You talk about leadership being a skill and I, I, I suspect you guys had something similar when you were in, in, uh, trade at where you look at a skill progression spectrum and it's like you start at unconscious incompetence like you don't even know how bad you are and then you want to graduate to conscious incompetence like hey you're you're not any good at this but at least you know you're not any good and then conscious competence so you're pretty good but you got to think about it to conscious competence in unconscious competence you don't have to, it's automatic so that first step for me like i was in the unconscious incompetence phase i was completely oblivious i just assumed i would be a good at leadership like like how hard can it be kind of thing and making that transition to conscious incompetence like that's a hard pill to swallow to realize like oh no way i actually have a 
kind of doing, and look, it's not a total disaster. Like everyone has things they're naturally good at. And I don't, I don't want to paint the picture that I was like, this is tyrant or something. It's just, I wasn't performing to the level that I expected myself to perform to. And I wasn't performing to the level that the team needed me to perform to. My team's a high performing team. They need a high performing leader. So I don't want to paint the picture. I'm like, this is an incompetent guy, you know, running rough. You're, you're a good one, leader that holds a high standard for yourself. And, uh, uh, and so you want to achieve that standard. You want to be better. I think that's what the mark of good leadership. Sir. Yeah. So, but I didn't have the skills to transition to competence and it's hard. Like it is a skill. Like you have to take, you know, there's skill acquisition paradigms you can apply in any, you know, whether you're learning tennis or whether you're learning how to shoot or whether you're learning leadership, it's like you can apply those same strategies, but it, you have to view it as a, as a skill. Like you said something earlier, I actually wrote it down. You said, you know, people don't see leadership as a problem. They don't see it as a skill and they don't see it as a solution. And it's like, I got to remember that because that's exactly it. And I did not see leadership as a skill. I thought it was an innate quality and that's just my personality. And yeah, I'm a little rough around the edges. Like people just have to deal with it. And you know, my, my confidence will shine through and carry the day. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't. Well, what you said uh, really resonates with me. And, and I think that's uh, the power of extreme ownership is the recognition that you said, like, Hey, I can't expect everyone else to change. I have to actually change myself. I have to change myself. I, you can't control anyone else. You can control yourself. And I think, you know, we, Jocko was talking about this a while back. We need to create a plaque with a, with a, with a mirror on it. It says problem identified. So that you can look at it and say, okay, now I know who's the, who's the problem here. Because, uh, you know, if you and I have a conflict, I can't change you, but I can change me. I can change how I'm approaching you. I can change how I'm interacting with you. And that changes the entire outcome of our relationship and our ability to actually work together and go accomplish a mission and win. Uh, and that's really the power of extreme ownership. Yeah, no, I like it, man. So you, you sat through these Extreme Ownership Academy live sessions. And you said you sat through three or four of them uh, of, of, of the free uh, the ones that we run each month for first responders. And then you joined up uh, and, and sat on, on the live sessions uh, every week. I did, yeah. And what did, you, what did you learn from that? What was your, what, what was your biggest takeaways? How did it help? It's funny. What I realized, I mean, there's a, there's a, that's a big question. We'll probably talk all day about it. I realized that I'd completely misread the book. I realized that it was, uh, it was very... Uh, counterintuitive in some ways. Uh, I realized how hard it was. Like, I remember my first times trying to, like, even just sitting and listening, just like this one thing, hey, just listen. Like, how simple is that? Just like, don't talk. Like, that's your only job. Just don't talk. And the first time I tried to do that, I almost vibrated out of my chair. Like, I, to progress to the point where now I can sit and listen to someone, like, like it's, it's, it's more of an, it's, it's almost like an innate skill now. So yeah, so my first takeaway was that it's not like there's so many little aspects of it beyond the title of extreme ownership. Oh yeah, everything's my fault. Okay, okay, cool. Right? Like, no, there's like all these little different aspects of it. I think my biggest epiphany or like the, 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 the turning point for me was when I realized that I was not approaching it in a skill acquisition framework. And what I did is I formed an analogy of how we train guys for tactical situations and then applied it. So um, hopefully this isn't too much detail, but... If we're training, okay, people have, humans have, and when we respond instinctively to threats, we have a survival bias, right? So if I think, you know, if I'm walking and it's Texas and I walk and I see a curly stick out of the corner of my eye, I'm probably going to jump out of the way because if it's a snake and I don't jump, I'm in trouble. But if it's a stick and I jump, I'm not in trouble. It's a survival bias response. And we're probably going to see flight, f fight, flight, or flee. One of those three things. If I come around the corner on the trail uh, in, you know, back home in the mountains and I see a big brown thing, maybe it's a rock, maybe it's a grizzly bear. 
fight, flight, or freeze are, are probably three pretty good options. And I want to respond instinctively because it's a very quick response. But if I'm a police officer running through a house, you know, after a bad guy, and all of a sudden there's a teenager holding an object pointing at me, if, is it a gun or is it a remote control? That is a, a, you know, I cannot make an instinctive survival bias decision. I have to elevate my thinking process to a more strategic level, to a conscious choice. I can't let my subconscious make that decision. It's not accurate enough. And it'll err on the side of caution. The way we train police officers to do that is we stress inoculate them. We give them force on force. Well, first we teach them the skill. Hey, this is how you properly scan scan someone to see if they're a threat or not. This is what you need to look for. This is the body positioning. This is, you know, this is what a weapon looks like. This is, you know, how you use your light to get better. You teach them the skills of that, of that encounter. Then you increase the fidelity of scenario training to give them more and more pressure. So when they end up in that situation for real, it's not their first time there. So novel circumstances always trigger instinctive responses more than situations we're used to. So they can make a better decision between, they they can make a better decision of what to do. And then they have the skill to do that thing at a a higher level uh, of proficiency. What I didn't realize is that, you know, if someone came into my office, let's say I wanted I wanted to change the schedule or something. And someone comes in my office and they're upset about that. They don't want to change the schedule because I just emailed everyone, hey guys, we're changing the schedule to this. And I, you know, I'm going to get some blowback. Someone comes into my office and they have blowback. I don't think my subconscious can tell the difference or my instinct can tell the difference between that interpersonal conflict and a physical conflict, a physical threat. And I think I was very susceptible to have that fight, flight, or freeze response. And I mean, we've all been to meetings where you know, someone gives someone pushback and the person just, you know, they shut down. Well, they're freezing, right? Or someone gets pushback and they just change their opinion. Well, they're fleeing. My response, my go-to response is fighting. Like if this guy's like, I don't think it's your schedule. Man, you don't understand the pressures of the overtime. You don't understand the efficiencies in our call response. Like I'll give you a thousand reasons of why I'm right because it's my instinct just, you know, blowing back at you. And it's a survival bias because I can't, my subconscious can't tell the difference. You're a threat to me. And what I started thinking is like, wait a second, like, I can develop a skill here on how to on how to eliminate that instinctive survival bias response and instead get a more deliberate response. Mm-hmm. And I mean, look, there's a million things I could have done to prevent that that interaction to begin with, and we can talk about that. But that initial friction point, say, like, you know, hey, I can learn the skill of how to deal with someone who's upset with me. I can learn the skill of like, there's no even time pressure. I don't have to make a rapid decision. I can just listen to this guy. Like that's a great skill. I can learn these skills. And then we can apply these in role-playing scenarios. So the next time someone comes in with me and they have some friction, this is not the first time I've dealt with someone who's upset with me. As we were talking, like I'm actually here in Texas at the time uh, teaching for the National Tactical Office Association on a SWAT command course. And we talk about emotional intelligence. We talk about leadership. And I asked the class, I said, who here has done force-on-force training for, you know, uh, for, for use of force training? 25 guys, hands up. Who that, here's that's done, 100% of your, your uh, attendees. 100% of attendees. Who here has done uh, role-playing for leadership scenarios? Two hands went up. We're not role-playing this. We're not training this. We're not, we're not, we, we have a paradigm to acquire skills, and we're not applying that paradigm to leadership as a skill because we don't view it as a skill. We view it as something, hey, man, you either got it or you don't. Like, that's the end of it. So, yeah, I think that was a big turning point. It was like, hey, this is a skill, and it's hard. Like, it's hard to learn, but you can learn it. And then it just keeps getting easier and easier. Like, it's never easy, 
but it, it, it certainly ceases to be that feeling like an impossible task. I think people are often taken aback at just how hard leadership is. And I talk to leaders all the time from different industries. I mean, it could be law enforcement. It could be uh, military. It could be in, in the corporate and business worlds. Uh, and they'll be like, I'm dealing with these issues. This is such a challenge. And they get caught off guard by that. I think oftentimes people step in that position because it's, you know, you mentioned just the, the un, unconscious uh, incompetence piece. When when you're looking up the chain of command at your leaders, oftentimes you're like, man, if I was in that position, it'd be so easy. It'd be so easy. We just, I'd make this call, and you know, everything would be great. You know, uh, I'd fix all the problems. And and then when you step into those roles, you're like, oh man, uh, this is this is hard. And uh, I think, I, I mean, I it's your story is a fascinating one because when you get you've been on the team, they call you to come back and be their boss. And then when you step into that role of thinking, like that, that's the best case scenario. Like you've been on that team, you know the team, these are your people, this is the culture. Um, they're calling you because people like you and want you to actually lead the team. And then you step in there and realize like, oh man, this is actually much more challenging than I thought it was gonna be. Uh, I don't have the skills that, that I need. I actually have to go seek help somewhere to learn and develop more of the skills that I need to, uh, to, to lead that team. I think that's a, that's an incredible revelation. Um, and it says a lot about you as a leader to be able to put your ego in check enough to say, where can I go to actually seek, uh, you know, seek out some guidance that can give me the leadership skills I need to be able to solve these problems. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I remember one of my first sessions, I had a question on the tip of my tongue. I didn't ask it because I was like, I'm the, the, the new guy at the session. But I was going to ask, like, hey, how do you handle? And I called. I had a word for it. I called it leadership fatigue. Like, hey, like, how do you? How do these people stay in jobs for a long time, being in leadership positions? It's exhausting. Like, I literally felt like the white belt showing up to the you know jujitsu gym, and just doing everything by strength. And I would leave. I would leave work having not accomplished anything and just being completely wiped out. And I was like. I'm going to be lucky if I make it a year in this job. I need to start kind of keeping an eye out for what's up. This is like way harder than I thought. Of course, it wasn't my fault. It was, you know, these guys are, you know, uh, personalities and this and that, right? It, you know, it was my fault. Because now here I am three and a half years in and it's like, uh, I've hit my stride. So it's 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 way easier. Now you come teach a week-long uh, course to a bunch of other SWAT leaders in Texas and, and your team's running the show up there. That's That says a lot about your leadership, definitely. That's oh, awesome. yeah, yeah, they've... They're awesome, man. They're awesome. That's a culture of decentralized command, which is, uh, that's, that's outstanding. I remember the first time that I saw you on uh, one of those, those live sessions in your olive drab, you know, green uh, uniforms. And, uh, and I remember like, oh, who's this guy? Like, oh, he's, he's obviously, you know, police or military. And I remember the first time, you know, as you started to ask some questions. And what was really cool, Kevin, stands out to me is, your sit reps over time, you know, over the course of the next year, you know, the, the, the next two years, as, uh, as you would, you would, you would post, uh, uh, we call it sit rep or situation report, you know, in the military, just an update on, Hey, here's this leadership challenge. I was asked some questions about here's, here's some, uh, here's what, what's happened. Here's how it's going now. And there was some, some pretty awesome, uh, turnarounds of like, okay, Kevin gets this stuff. Kevin's actually implementing this stuff. Uh, and it was, it was pretty neat to see, uh, the, the impact that that was making and your growth as a leader, you know, over time. Yeah. Well, it's, I, like, I took this serious. I took this like a, like a job, like this is my job to get better at this stuff. And I like, I read a lot and practiced this stuff, you know, and, and did all the online sessions. Like it is like, it's hard work. Like it wasn't, 
Like I could just sit and listen and be passive at it. Like it's not a passive acquisition skill type thing. Like it's, it, it, you have to work at it and try, and then I'd screw something up. And I remember like I would, I would try to listen to someone and I would vibrate on my chair for five minutes and then just like interrupt. No, I wouldn't even make it five minutes. And then I could stretch it out and then I could stretch it out. And then I remember one time, like when I, one of the first successes that we talked about just listening, like just listen, that's all you have to do. Um, I had done something and I'd made an error. I'd failed to communicate something properly. And because I'd failed to communicate something properly, I'd caused some angst on the team. And a guy came in the office and he was upset. Like he was upset with me. And I'm like, I'm just going to sit and listen. And as I sat and listened, like before I would have dealt with the emotion. Hey man, you can't come in here. You kind of, yeah, it wasn't being disrespectful. He was just emotional, right? Like disrespect's not cool. And we don't, we don't talk to each other that way on the team, but he's emotional. I'm like, Hey man, you need to calm down. I would have said something like, like, let's just have a rational conversation, which probably wouldn't have helped that much. I just shut up. It, it most certainly would not have helped. So I just shut up. What I saw was like over a few minutes, the emotion dissipated. Like he dealt with it. I didn't have to expend any leadership capital dealing with the emotion. We didn't have to dedicate any time to like, hey man, you can't come in with that kind of emotion. Like it became a non-issue. He got to say his thing and just listen to him. And I kept listening. And when I kept listening, I realized that he's describing an issue, but the issue is not the actual problem. So he actually talked himself through the issue of, you know, the thing I was trying to change. And then we got to the actual problem. And the actual problem was I had actually assigned this guy too much work. I was not aware of the, the other demands on him. I hadn't given him enough support in certain areas. Like there was certain issues, but it had masqueraded. Like there was like three levels down. I had to go three levels down to get there. I wouldn't have made it one level before. Now I was effortlessly, just by listening, well, it's not effortlessly, but you know, it was, wasn't hard to listen. Just by listening, actively hearing what he's saying. Cause it's like, there's what he's saying. And then there's what he's saying. And it was the first time I remember ever getting to that second part of like, what is this guy actually saying? And we were able to deal with the actual issue. And it was so much easier than before. I, I, I couldn't, I was like, I felt like, like this, is, this is like magic. Like wh this is, what is this? This is magic. I don't understand. This is voodoo. How, how is this possible? This stuff works, man. That's <laughs> what I, lo I love about that hashtag that comes out and, you know, all those, those, uh, uh, those chats, you know, for the extreme ownership live sessions is, is hashtag this stuff works. And I think uh, it's something that I used to say to Jocko when he'd give me a piece of, of, uh, of, of guidance, you know, leadership, like, Hey, why don't you try this? And I'd be like, man, what is, you know, That's that doesn't make any sense. Like, what are you talking? I know, I know, you know, I know how to do this. And, and then I would be like, well, let me, let me give that a shot. And I would do what we you know, what he, what he told me to do. And then I'd be like, dang. This, that that actually works. I go back to him like, man, this shit actually works. Uh, so we we changed it to this stuff works to clean it up a little bit. But uh, uh, but definitely, I mean, I, I think there there's there's what works and there's what doesn't work, and that's what we meant by effective and effective. Not that you need to run roughshod over people. You know, if if you're accomplishing the the, the immediate you know tactical uh, goal, um, but that there's over the long term, like there's what works and what doesn't work, and and obviously. Um, even just that skill of listening, I'm very much like you, Kevin. I want to jump in and make things happen. I'm a pretty default aggressive person by nature. And yet, I mean, I find this on the home front with my, my wife. A lot of times she just wants to vent something to me. I need to, I want to jump in there and solve her problem and make things happen. And I was like, I just need to listen. And I have to assume the like, you know, the Jocko listening position of crossed arms, you know, yeah. for, force your kind of hand here so that you, it's pretty hard to talk if you're, you know, sitting here in that, in that position. And, uh, and that's something that's, that's helped me a lot, but it's, 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 
I, when I go into a team meeting, even at Echelon Front, I, I teach this stuff. And it's, it's still so hard for me because I care about the company. I care about the mission. I care about the leaders that we get to work with. And, and I want to help them. It's so hard for me not to jump in on stuff. And, and so I literally have to write down in a notebook, like, listen, you know, ask questions. You know, you know this is, and then I got to go back through and, and be like, uh, okay, don't, you know, don't talk, listen, ask questions. How did I do? You know, then I, after the meeting's over, okay, how, I need to evaluate. How did I do? Did I do, how much did I talk? Did I actually ask questions? Did I actually listen to what people had to say? Did I cut someone off and step on top of them, you know? Um, and, uh, and that's, I mean, what a way to show someone disrespect. And, and sometimes people don't mean it that way. Oh, I'm just trying to be efficient with time. So you're telling me about a problem, but I'm going to go ahead and just cut you off to tell you that we're, we're moving to solve that problem. But to you, that means like, hey, you're not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not listening to you. I, I'm, I don't even care about what you have to say. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a real sign of disrespect that, that certainly can negatively impact our relationship, even if I didn't intend it that way. You know, I, I thought of it, the way this finally sunk in that I have to listen is I was thinking about this. I was thinking, hey, if you told us, you know, hey, we want you guys to go do a search warrant on this house. There's a murderer who lives there and he's got a bunch of guns and we need to search the house for the gun that you use in the murder. I would say, okay, what's the address? And we would do a map recce. We would, you know, we would do intelligence background on the guy. We would, you know, go do a site recce. Like we would learn everything we could about that problem before we jumped into the problem. Okay. So now we're going to deal with an interpersonal issue or some other administrative issue in the office. Why wouldn't I do the same thing of collecting all the information I can get before I jump into the problem? And it's not like I have to go out and I just have to sit and not talk and, and I will get way more information. And then I ask questions. I'm going to collect all the information. It's like a recce. I'm going to collect all the information before I jump into the problem. It's really obvious. When, when I put it that, I was like, oh, I've got no excuse not to just shut up and ask questions. And I still, this is, that is probably one of the areas I still struggle with is I talk too much in meetings. I don't ask enough questions because I kind of know everything. And like, I, I have to, it's a conscious, I'm still, it's conscious competence when I do it right, when I do it right. And I screw it up lots. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat with you, man. But I think we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And I think just knowing those so that you can put some contingency plans in place and work on that, you know, we can, we can all improve all the time. And uh, that's certainly an area that I can have to continuously be focused on and try to try to improve in as well. Cause I, I struggle with it by, by nature. I want to jump in there. I want to make things happen. Uh, and it's hard, it's hard for me. Um, but I know that that's not what good leadership looks like. Um, you mentioned the, you know, the force on force piece and, and, and the role play scenarios. And that's something, you know, we see this in the business world too. If you're, if you're part of a sales team, they're going to teach you. They're, they're, you're going to do role play. You're, you're going to role play a sales call over and over and over again. They're going to throw a bunch of uh, different scenarios at you um, and, uh, you know, the, the objections that you're going to have to deal with and how are you going to negotiate that and how are you going to talk to this, this you know, the, the, the customer that you're trying to close this deal with. And they do that for their sales teams, but they don't do it as, as a leadership tool. People don't use that role play scenario as a leadership tool. And they don't realize how effective that can be. Even just as simple as, uh, hey, I have to have a tough conversation with an underperformer on the team about how we need to get them you know, to do better and why they need to do better. Uh, so let's role play that scenario. Okay, if, if you, know, you know that person, you can mimic how that person's going to be and, and, and realistically um, pl play the role of that person. If, if I do even one, two, three iterations of practicing that conversation before we have it for real, 
it is, I am infinitely better prepared to go and perform. But for, for all the different scenarios that, that I'm not going to be caught off guard if you get really angry and emotional. I'm not going to be caught off guard if you just kind of stay passive and don't, uh, you know, and, and don't really push back. Uh, I'm not going to really be caught off guard if, if there's some underlying issue that I didn't know about, you know, that, that I need to kind of di dig into because we've, we've looked at those different angles. We've thought about those different angles. We've practiced this in kind of a force on force type scenario so that we're rehearsing, we're preparing and we're ready to actually go. And, and, and my, my ability to have that conversation is just infinitely greater. The high watermark for a good training program is when you go on an operation and the guys turn next to you after the ops and go, that felt just like training. If you hear that magic sentence, it means your training program is very, very good. We've been lucky enough. We've had that sentence op like uttered, you know, after engagements, like that felt just like training. That's like, good. That means we are training properly. You know, you talk about the sales call rep. We actually, when I worked in a gang Intel unit for a while, and when we, we would actually role play, uh, informant recruitment, uh, pitches, which is very similar. And then we'd go do them. And again, we would say at the end of it, that felt so much better, but role playing is weird because it feels stupid when you first do it. Like you, you feel ridiculous and you know, someone starts cracking jokes or, you know, it's hard to do it seriously. Um, but like you said, like, why would you expect to be good at doing something the very first time you're doing it? Like what you would not expect that for any other thing in life. Why would you expect it for a very difficult conversation where emotions are involved? Like it's, it's a ridiculous expectation. Um, one thing I find with role-playing is like people might think, well, I, you know, I, I don't have anyone to role-play with. Great. Do it yourself. Like I have role-played, you know, this conversation in my hotel room over the last week. Cause I, you know, there were, I was, well, she's probably gonna ask me this. I, I don't want the first time it coming off my tongue to be when the cameras are rolling and I'm feeling pressure. That's terrible. Like why wouldn't I control that variable? We do that in ops. We control all the variables we can. Why wouldn't you control that variable? And you know, when you're in the office. I, I like the extreme ownership academy sessions when someone role plays something. I love it when they say, okay, I got this problem. Great, let's role play. Because the first time it feels like they feel clumsy and it's like, and you're like, and they realize, oh, this would have been a disaster. And then you say, okay, let's do it again. And when you do it again, you see that infinite improvement. And it's, man, it, it, role playing is so powerful. We do it in so many different domains. Why don't we do it more for leadership? I, I just, I need to do it more. I don't do it enough. Why don't we do it more? It's a, it's a powerful tool, absolutely, and uh, and I think um, it's something that that should be used as a leadership tool. Right, it's the same as force on force training. Use that role play scenario as a leadership tool so that you can learn to deal with challenges any any number of leadership challenges. Whether it's talking to your boss, talking to a peer, talking to a subordinate, talking to another agency or someone that you have to work uh, with, a subcontractor, whatever it may be. I mean, th these are. It can it can help us be infinitely greater uh, at at, uh, at at accomplishing the mission and be able to to move forward uh, to to solve those leadership challenges. So why don't people do it more often then? Is it because it feels silly? It's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I think it's uncomfortable. I think people don't in the same way that, um, in the in the same way that it just it just. Hey, I don't need that. You know, one, there's, there's some element of like, oh, this, this will be a really easy conversation. It's not that big of a deal, you know, um, or it's, it's, uh, it's uncomfortable to be in that, that role. And so, you know, part of that is just getting comfortable in an uncomfortable situation. Um, you know, it's one of the things I learned about, uh, I love about jujitsu. And, you know, I, I remember watching my kids, you know, my oldest son, who's been practicing jujitsu for several years now. And I remember when he first started as a, as a, you know, five-year-old, and he was, he's getting, you know, taken down and, and, you know, and mounted by some bigger kid who's on top of him. And he's like panic mode and scrambling. 
And it was probably three or four months into his training when I, I remember I was just watching from the, the side, and, and he just he gets uh, he gets taken down by some bigger kids twice his size. Kid, kid mounts him, and he just kind of looks over at me. He like protects his neck, you know, puts his hands up, uh, totally calm, you know, and then just like didn't, he knows what he has to do. He like grabs a post, sweeps him, uh, and I was like, okay, that's what's good about this training. I think putting putting people even. You know, even if you can't get a, a submission, even if you don't have the skills to actually, uh, you know, submit some bigger, larger opponent, being comfortable in what was previously a very uncomfortable situation. So you're not panicking, you're not making bad decisions. You're just, you're comfortable there. You know what you need to do. And you're just waiting for the right opportunity, you know, uh, to, to, to reverse that situation and, and, and sweep or get a submission. So it's the same thing. I think we're, it's uncomfortable being a role play situation. You know, if you're like, hey, Leif, let, let's role play this. I'm like, dude, do we, have, do we have time for that, Kevin? I mean, that's, that sounds kind of silly. You know, what, what is this about? It's uh, like drama class. Yeah, in, in, the, yeah. in the same way that, like, you know, uh, in the way that people may not want to train hard physically either. I mean, we, 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 there's, there are folks that think, like, oh, the adrenaline's going to get me through, you know. <laughs> I used to laugh at that when I heard that in, a, uh, in the military. And I'm sure you hear that in law enforcement, too. Um, where, like, yeah, well, the adrenaline will get you through and the bullets are flying around. Like, that is 100% false. Anyone who's been in, in that situation, if you, uh, if you are physically exhausted, you're not going to make good decisions. You know, if you're not physically prepared for, uh, you know, for, for the difficult situation you could find yourself in combat, there's no way you're going to be able to lead yourself or lead your team. Um, and that's a crucial component for it. So you got to be you got to be training hard and pushing yourself hard so that you're ready for those situations that, that are going to be really uncomfortable. And, and I think there's, uh, it's, it's the same thing, you know? So it's, once you encourage someone to do it, oftentimes what we see as leaders that, Hey, why don't we role play that? There's pushback initially, but then once people realize like, Oh, I went into that conversation after role playing it and, and I freaking knocked that thing out of the park. Felt just like so, training. Yeah. So much easier. Or, or training was, because what I was going to say when you say that it felt just like training, that's a great thing. There's, there's, a, there's an even better statement. Oh. And the better statement is like, that seemed easy compared to training. Oh, okay. Like, you like, you have one up me. I like it. That seemed easy compared to training. <laughs> like that's it. something that Jocko used to get when he was running. You, know, you mentioned training attachment. I was never at training attachment, but um, I ran a, a leadership course for our, our officer for, for two years called the Junior Officer Training Course. And then I would go out and, and shadow the training attachment instructors um, as, as my uh, platoons and task units were going through the work of soccer when I was an operations executive officer at a SEAL team. So, so I got to see both, you know, both, both sides of that and spend a bunch of time you know, with training attachment uh, when Jocko was there with, with his instructors. Uh, and even after uh, Jocko, Jocko left uh, that, that command and retired. So it, it was, uh, but there's, a, there's an element there where people, they're, they're uncomfortable, right? They don't want to be in that comfortable, that uncomfortable situation. And when they realize that it's, wow, that, that actually helped me. That actually helped me. Now they want to do more of that. So they're going to they're gonna come back and now they're running. Uh, and so we see this all the time with teams of, of leaders where there's initial big pushback against it when they realize that it's effective. Now you got, you got teams that are running role play scenarios and running training themselves. And then the leader's like, wow, look at that. That's pretty awesome to see. There was initially pushback, but now they recognize how effective this is. They recognize leadership's a skill and they're working to improve that skill and look how much better they are as a result. Yeah, so man, I really like that. Like, you know, that was easy compared to training. Like, that's uh, that's the new high water mark now for me. I have to rephrase it. Um, and and just just a caveat that right, we wrote a whole 
you know, we own a whole chapter in the dichotomy of leadership, our second book, Extreme Ownership, on train hard but train smart. Yeah. So that doesn't mean just smash people and, and crush them. Training should be useful. Training should be, it should teach them and open their minds, right? Not close their minds. But you still got to train and push people hard. And, and I think, you know, what we try to do um, in the training that we ran was put people in those scenarios. And sometimes the pushback you get is like, well, it wasn't that hard. You know, I, the combat operations were not even close to being that hard on my last deployment. So why should we train this hard? And so the, 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 and the, the answer is if, if you go into a real world scenario and it's easy for you, that's awesome. That's actually what we want. We want training to be harder. We want training to be more difficult so that, that it's, you're, you're, you're prepared and you're ready when people's lives are actually on the line. You can accomplish your mission. You can bring everybody home safely. Like that's the goal. Um, you know, it's the, the opposite is catastrophic, right? If, if you get into a situation where you're like, I was completely unprepared for that. And so it's so much harder than I thought it was going to be when I got into a real world situation, when it was chaotic, when it was overwhelming, when I didn't have all the information, when I was unable to detach and make good decisions and properly prioritize and execute for my team. You know, then, then you're talking this, this is something that could lead to, to absolute disaster uh, and cost people their lives. Well, that's it. Like what I always think is, hey, if, if you can't do this skill in a controlled environment where, you know, you and I are just role playing a scenario. There's no emotion involved. We don't have appointments to get to. There's no time pressure. You know, if I can't perform in that scenario, do I think I'm going to perform better when when I'm actually feeling my own emotions and I'm having to deal with your emotions? Am I going to feel better when, you know, we've got a call coming up that we've got to, you know, finish the conversation? Like, I'm not going to perform better. I'm going to perform worse. But it's weird because we think, oh, I'll just do, like I said, adrenaline will get me through. I've got the will to survive. I'll just take care of it. It's, just, it's silly when you think about it, you know. But you know what else I like about role-playing? And so we role-play a lot for decision-making exercises. Is if you and I role-play a whole bunch of scenarios, like, you know, you we're coworkers and we're going to role-play, you know, someone upset about something or, you know, whatever different scenario. Well, eventually, you and I are going to have to have a conversation where, you know, you and I are, are the like the actual participants. And we've created a paradigm where you know how to lead up the chain and I know, you know, and, and I know how to lead up the chain. Like, you know, like we are now predictable. Like, you know what to expect from me and I know what to expect to you. So I, I say like leadership training is like a team sport. And that's one of the things, the advantages of our, what we did with our team is after I got over my uh, reluctance to tell people what I was doing, I started to become like a, a pretty vocal advocate of it. Other guys wanted on the program. So we loaded, I think, I think like half the guys on the team wanted to do the program. So they did the program. Well, now we're all operating on that, you know, the, off that same, same playbook. And when we role play decision-making exercises, you know, tabletop scenarios, and then we go it on a real op, I know how you think, because we've role played this. You know how I think, because we've role played this. Now we can perform much better and make decisions much sooner and get through that OODA loop a, a lot quicker than we otherwise would have. So it's, it's just got tremendous benefits in my opinion. So let's talk about how you implemented that on your team, because when was, when did we, you brought this in and you had, you had 30 officers participate in this? Something like that. Yeah. I think you guys, you had 60 total now, right? Over the last couple of years, I believe. A, a bunch. Of, yeah. So we did one cohort and then we did a second cohort of whoever else was interested. And so you, you put them uh, with access to Extreme Ownership Academy. You put them through the Extreme Ownership uh, Foundation courses. Uh, and, and so how, how did that work out for you? How did you start that program? 
um, you know, what, what did you, how did, how did you guys participate in it? You know, what, what did you see, you know, as a result? Yeah. So it was completely, so first thing it was completely voluntary. You know, we did, we didn't want to force anyone to do it and we had to cap the numbers just because we hit into, you know, we only have so much budget and that's just the reality of it. So we could, you know, afford about 30 guys on the initial one is what we did. And then we did the rest. We just said, well, we'll do the rest next year. Uh, we bought a copy of the books for everyone. So both people, uh, I, I can't remember if we got all three books or if we just did um, Leadership Strategies, Tactics, and Extreme Ownership. I don't, I think we might have not done Dichotomy right away. Um, you were kind enough to do a big intro session to me, to, to us. And I remember, I still remember, because I'm like, you know, hey guys, listen, we've got a goal. We want to be one of the world's best team. And so we've brought, you know, the world's best leaders. And I remember you laughed and you said, you said something like, bro, the only reason we know this stuff is because we've screwed it all up before. Do you remember? Like, I do remember that, yeah. <laughs> that was an awesome session. It was just cool to see all your guys sitting in the room there, you know, with 30 participants. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was fun for me. But I, I, I think I said what qualifies me here to, stay, you know, to, to tell you about leadership is that I've made every mistake you could possibly make. Um, and I've had to think deeply about those mistakes, learn from those mistakes, and and uh, and and share these leadership lessons, you know, with others as a result. So um, I think it's uh, it was uh, it was pretty funny to be, be you know to 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 hear you know I appreciate the the uh, the compliment and the high bar, uh, but I can tell you that's uh, I, I am uh, certainly far below that bar uh, regularly, um, and it's part of a journey where we're constantly trying to learn all the time, you know, and get, and get better at every capacity. Yeah, it's, I almost didn't believe you when you said it. I was like, no way. But then when I got further in the training, I realized like, no, these are skills that I can, like, I just assumed, okay, this guy's just naturally really good at, this is like having some, you know, NBA player trying to teach me basketball. Like I'm never going to be to that level. Like he's just born with these innate skills that I do not have. And it's like, no, that's actually not, that's not true. Like you weren't just being falsely humble. Like you're like, no, these are skills that I had to learn and then you can learn. And when you actually go through it, it's like, oh man, I, I can learn and I have learned this and I can see where I still need to grow, but it's a learnable skill. It's kind of, it's really uh, liberating to, to, to learn that, right? You're like, oh, I'm not stuck with these frustrations. I can just eliminate them by changing my behavior in these ways. It's pretty cool. So you put it out to, you put it out of the team, you know, it, it's, it's voluntary who wants to participate and you filled, you filled every seat. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. We had to turn some guys away um, just because we hit procurement limits. Like there's only a certain amount of money we can spend until we have to go to a contract. And, uh, we want to avoid that. That's why we, we, you know, we had to cap it. Um, but yeah, so the guys did all the sessions. So we got our, you know, our monthly reports of, you know, who's been on the platform and, and it's like anything, like some guys are digging right into it and other guys are like, Hey man, like you said, you're interested in this training. Like what's, you know, what's stopping you from engaging on the sessions. And then we, uh, attended the sessions. It's, it's, it's tough for the guys. Cause there are oftentimes on calls. Like we don't have a, a set schedule where it's like, we know we're going to be in the office on these days. So what the guys would do is sometimes on our training blocks, they would schedule lunch uh, hour for during that hour long session. Cause in it's 11 AM where we're at, that's when the session is. So they just take an early lunch and put it on the big screen and, you know, between, uh, CQB rips. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was interesting because we saw, I would say that increase in predictability of how we were interacting with each other. Cause now we're off the same playbook. But the other thing is it really helped me is because it's like, okay, now these guys know the standard that like, they know what I'm supposed to do here. They know I'm not like, I can't blame them. I need to, you know, accept ownership of this. They, they know I need to listen. They will know if I'm deviating from the program. And that really helped me. It's like, it's like having a workout buddy. You know, if you and I are going to go to the, if I'm working out by myself, no one's going to know if I skip my workout. If you and I are workout, like there's accountability there, right? Iron sharpens, sharpens iron. And, and now if I ditch my workout, you're going to know, and you're going to help me, you know, Hey man, no, come on, let's go. 
And so I found it was the same way, where it's like, I know now these guys know the same things I know. They can hold me to account. I feel more obligation to, to do the hard work of swallowing my ego and, do, and, and doing it. And I found they were able to lead up the chain a lot more effectively, which I need them to do. I'm like super competent dudes on the team. Like I need them to lead up. And if they're not, if they're not doing that, like we're going to lose out. So it gave them the tools to do that and it gave me the tools to allow them to do that. It was, it was transformational. It was really, it was really interesting to watch how it kind of has taken hold over the last few years. How, so what was, what was the program like for your team? Like how, how often were you guys getting together? Were you reading a chapter of the book? Were you going through the, you know, the hour long course that we have on each chapter and then talking about that and how it applies? Uh, was there a re- like a regular cadence of when you were meeting back up to talk about this stuff? No, you know, that was probably one of the gaps is that we didn't do any of that. We just left it to the guys to do on their own. And then we expected to see it, uh, in practice. You know, in retro, like we've got a high training burden, so we just didn't prioritize that. We, you know, we, it's, it's funner to go to the range. Like, let's be honest, right? Um, that's probably something we, we we probably should do. Like that's a gap. Like that's something that we can improve on. Like we're, are, you know, we're serious students of it, but are we really as serious as we could be? And what performance improvements could we still realize? And what frustrations could we avoid? Like there's room for improvement there. And and you know, in in hindsight, that's what we should have done. And probably when I go back, it's probably what we'll have to do now that you've, now you've said it. <laughs> well, I think, you know, there, there's uh, you're, you're never, you know, there's always, obviously you guys have a busy job and, and that's got to be the priority and you focus on that. But I think something I learned from Jock when we started working together at Tasking Bruiser is, is making time for the things that are important. Obviously, leadership development is one of those things. You have to make time for those things. And so I think, you know, one of the things I love about Extreme Ownership Academy is that it's you know, some, some people, you know, we talk about leadership as a skill and some people think about it as like, oh, I went to the seminar or I read this book or I watched this video and they don't think about it as something that you actually have to train all the time. I mean, it's, it's almost like being, you know, one of the 1970s, like Bruce Lee Kung Fu movies type thing. If, if I learn some magic, you know, uh, some Kung Fu move, uh, you teach me that in about five minutes and we practice it a couple of times. And now for the rest of my life, I can just dominate anybody with this Kung Fu move. Well, anybody that trains jujitsu knows that it doesn't work that way, right? If you, if you want to actually be competent in, in a self-defense scenario, then you got to go and train multiple times a week, every single week for months and years on end in order to be able to, to handle yourself in any situation, particularly when someone is way larger than you or might have some skills as well. Leadership is just like that. And I think you know, one thing I love about the academy is, is that you can access it from anywhere at any time and, and that you can, you can do it regularly uh, so that you can work on these things every single week. And so the skills, you're improving those skills rather than letting those skills atrophy. So I found exactly that. If, if I go, like I've went over a month without going to the calls because it just so happened every time I'd sit down, the phone would ring and we'd have to go on a, on a call out. And you notice that you, you're like, you stop you just get away from it and then you, 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 you find your frustration levels increasing or your effectiveness starting to erode. And you, I almost need that touch up every week. Um, the other thing I notice is that sometimes we'll like revisit a topic and I'll be like, oh yeah, I, I saw this topic last time. And even if, first of all, it's not the same as it's always presented just a little bit different. Maybe it's a different instructor. Or there's a different spin on it. But even if it was the exact same, I am different. Like, so the, even if the lesson was the same, I could go back and watch all of the and actually, like I've, I just reread Extreme Ownership, and it's like I've read it like three times. 
It's the same book, but I'm different leader now. I'm appreciating it from a different perspective. That's why I, I will go back to muster again, probably for San Diego. Even if the content's the exact same, which I know it's not, I'm facing different challenges in my life. I have new experiences that I can apply to that. It's like when you go to jujitsu and get shown the scissor sweep for like the 20th time. It's like, oh wait, that little detail, I, had, I, I wasn't doing that before. Oh wait, that little detail, I wasn't doing that before. Like there's just so much depth to it. And that's what I really like about the Extreme Ownership Academy is you could have an encyclopedic memory about everything in the book. And I don't, like I, 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 I can't tell you everything that's in that book and every, like I just don't know it all that well. And it, but it's, it's like, even if you had that, the online sessions, like these, it's like little things. Like, uh, you know what, wait, can I give you like two of the favorite lessons I've ever learned? Absolutely. So there's this one uh, uh, lady on the call. Um, she says, hey, I was, you know, uh, first responder, wasn't promoted. Upset about not being promoted. I don't, you might remember this one because it's I someone I have a lot of time for. I, when, when she talks, I listen. I, I really like this person. Met her at Muster, fantastic. And she's upset. And, uh, you know, you know I, I can't remember what she said, but how I remember is like something like, hey, I want to kind of write an angry email about, you know, this was an unfair process. Or I was like, I was somehow, you know, treated unfairly. And it was like, hey, don't act in the way, you know, like if you did that, if you, if you don't get promoted, and I'm not sure what she was going to do, but if you didn't get promoted and you write the angry email to the boss, who does that? People who shouldn't have been promoted. Like you are validating everything that they thought about you. And so, yes, you must make a decision. Is this agency have enough? opportunity for me, you know, is this the right environment for me? But you always have to take the high road. And I've, I applied that. I remember our pay package came in and we are not unionized. We don't get a say in it. It's like government of Canada just decides what we get paid. And it was less than what other agencies get. And I was mad and I was like, well, you know, if, if, if they're going to do this and it's very emotional reaction, like I'm going to stop putting in those extra hours, you know, answer my emails. Well, who, who acts like that? Some guy that probably doesn't deserve to get paid more. Like, and I was like, oh, if they're going to do this. And I just like had this ridiculous rant in my head. And I was like, remembered what was discussed on that call and was able just to put it inside. It's like, what are you talking about? Like, I've got the best job in the world. I've got an incredible team. We got to go on, like, people would pay to do our job. They would pay to do it. And I get to do it for free. And I'm like complaining because my pay is like 1.3% less than the industry. So like, like, I just need to shut up, you know? Um, so that was probably one of my favorite takeaways. And then one of, oh, there's too many, but the other one I really love is, and this is all from different instructors. Jason Gardner talked about, the indirect approach, but he's like, takes it from a different level. He's like, it's not just the indirect approach, but it's indirect location. So he talks about having those, building those relationships. He's like, he's like, Kevin, he told me this direct. I can't remember the question I asked, but he's like, so you're going to call someone into your office and expect to have a fulsome conversation ac across the boss's desk when they're in the owner of the OIC's office and you expect them to be forthcoming or, you know, I'm going to go to a sit rep with the team and ask the, you know, the 12 guys, Hey guys, you know, uh, you know, wh what improvements do we need to make? Like, you're not going to get much, right? He goes, what you need to do is have that conversation at the range, have it when you're cleaning guns. And so I've applied that and the guys will, I won't tell the guys on the team that I'm doing this podcast. They're going to find it anyway. But one of the things I do is like, I remember we were doing a, a tear gas recertification at the range. We had to go get lunches. So I'm like, Hey, the guy's going to get lunch. I'm like, cause we had to go down to the mess to, to get our box lunches. It's like 20 minute drive. Hey man, I'll jump in with you. He's like, no, 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 you stay here. I don't, you know, I shouldn't. It's like, bro, I'm not there to pick up lunches. I want to have a conversation that's not in my office. And it's those, those all of those indirect informal conversations builds relationships. I'm just putting deposits in that bank. Like that was transformational. I'd, I had never, like I was not getting out of my office enough to my own detriment. Like it was just, just that small little change. It, 
it's, I can't even ex- explain the difference it made. And just have those little conversations. You just learn so much more. Because, you know, like every promotion you get, the reality of the front line gets more and more obscured. You just don't know what's happening. So you have to find ways of piercing that, you know, that fog. But yeah, those are two. I mean, those are two of my highlight reels. There's so many. There's so many highlight reels, but those are two of them. I remember getting promoted up the chain in the SEAL teams. And when the, the revelation, I was the operations officer on my last deployment to Iraq in 2009 and 10. And the revelation hit me that I was like, oh, oh, I'm the senior guy that like doesn't get it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how did that happen? Like I was never, you know, I was always the guy looking at the chain and saying those things. And it was just, it's just funny, right? You know, when, when, uh, uh, I was like, okay, I got to, I got to get out of my office and go build relationships. Uh, and yeah, I got to make these phone calls. I got to send these emails. I got to sit in these meetings, but it's way more important for me to get out of my office and go and actually talk to my, my troops and, and build those relationships with them. Um, so I, uh, that I understand what they need from me and, and they understand, you know, what I need from them and, and, uh, and how I can, I can better help and serve them. And, and I think that's, Dave Burke wrote an article about this, um, you know, for, for echelonfront.com a while back. Um, but it was, it was talking about the, the, instead of an open door policy, which is a real common term that people use in the military. Oh, I have an open door policy. Come talk to me, come into my office and talk to me. And yet, uh, instead of having that, you should have an empty chair policy. And it's, it's the same thing that you're talking about because it's the idea that like, Hey, most people are not going to have the courage to come into your office and talk to you. And if they do, it's like, Hey, you're sitting across the desk, you're in trouble. All the things you just said, you know, that, that, that Jason was talking about. Um, but yet if you get out of your office and go talk to them, you go see them, you meet them where they are. One, they can see that like, Hey, you're a, you're a person too. Like you're, you're a likable person. You're there to actually, um, help them, um, and, and serve them, provide them the support they need. You can talk to them about why you're making decisions and things that you're thinking about. What, you know, what's the, what's your commander's intent, right? The overarching goal that you're trying to accomplish, um, and the parameters, you know, within which you have to accomplish that. So it's, uh, you always get so much more information, I think, when you go to where your troops are and talk to them. And you get to learn stuff from them, too. I mean, it's, and one, it's, I mean, who likes to sit in meetings all day, you know, and sit in your office all day? I mean, I, I, I love being able to go out and actually interact and, and talk to talk to troops. And that was one of the reasons I ended up leaving the, the SEAL teams, uh, you know, uh, back in the day. I left at the 13-year mark in the Navy, and so I didn't, I didn't retire and spend 20 years in. Um, but that I'd, I'd have guys come in and say, Hey, can, we're, we're doing a jump. Can you come jump with us? You know, or, Hey, we're doing, we're going to the range. Can you come shoot with us? And almost always I had to say, no, I just had to say no. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't get there and do it with them. And, and it, I'd try to make the time for it when I could. Um, but I didn't do it near enough, you know, and it, it was, uh, and it was, it was, those are the kind of things I love to do and be around, you know, the kind of guys I, I like to be around. Um, and it was, uh, it was something that eventually I realized, like, you know, it's, I think it's time for me to move on. And, and I wasn't interested in going up the ranks, you know, further. Um, and, uh, and it was a giant decision for me to have to wrestle with, you know, at, at that point. Um, but I think every chance that you get, what I probably, what I didn't do well enough at the time, I think was prioritize that over, you know, the other stuff that was, do, you know, I was doing like, Hey, yeah, I got to get this paperwork done. Can I do that? You know, tonight, um, you know, can I do that super early, you know, tomorrow morning um, and, and making time to actually get out and spend spend the time with your frontline leaders and your frontline troops that are out there executing the mission so that you can actually get that information from them. You can learn from them and you can build those relationships with them. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So getting out, getting that empty chair and having that appreciation for their, for their challenges. Um, yeah. There's, there's an infinite amount of paperwork. I could sit in my office 80 hours a week 
there's still going to be the same amount of paperwork. Like it's, it just keeps magically appearing. So it, do I really move the needle that way? And one thing that I had a major revelation by get, having that empty chair policy as much as I can, and I don't do it enough, but it's like, I realized something. I was like, the more time I spend with the guys, the more I appreciate their professionalism and their skill level. And that allows, you know, that allows me to exercise more decentralized command without, you know, stressing about it. And one thing I realized was if we have a problem, so sometimes, you know, we'd be at a call. I remember this one call. So Christmas Eve, uh, some kid who's suffering from mental health uh, disorder flipped his kitchen table Christmas dinner because he didn't get enough mashed potatoes. Like that's exactly like, that's not a, that's not hyperbole. That's what he did. Stabbed his mom and barricaded in his room. So, you know, the patrol didn't want to kick his door in because, you know, some kid who's, He's got a knife and he's already stabbed one person. You don't want that tight confrontation. So they call us because we have tools and tactics we can negotiate. We can, we have better ways of handling that. So it was a pretty easy call. You know, we, we go up, contain his room, uh, try to negotiate, won't come out, pop a little gas in. He comes out, we take him into custody, like no problem. That platoon that was on that uh, call rotation, that was Christmas Eve, they rotate off. I'm staying on as the on-call commander. Next day, we get the same call, different city, or what I thought was the same call. And so I'm like, hey, like new platoon is on. So they show up to the call. I'm like, yeah, guys, it's easy. Let's, let's just, you know, contain the room, pop, like, like the same, like, like so easy. This is, we just did this yesterday. Those guys weren't on the call. There's friction. They don't want to do that. That's a stupid plan. They want to gas the whole house, not just the room. They don't want to, they don't want to clear with tech. They, you know, there's like, and we're having, I'm having friction with the team leader. And I'm like, what I realized was, first of all, that I have to be careful how I talk because Sometimes suggestions come across as orders and questions come across as suggestions. And, you know, you have to be very, very careful. I, my word carries more weight than I think. But the other thing I realized is, is, is uh, I, I couldn't understand why there was so much friction with this guy. Why did he want to do this, like, overkill type, you know, like, you don't have to gas the whole house. We do the kids in the room. I realized I didn't have all the information I thought I had. And so what I realized is, and is that if my team and I, if my, if me, if you and I are looking at the exact same problem and we've trained together for 10 years, we've worked together for 10 years, what are the chances you and I are going to have dramatically different ways of addressing that problem? It's like 0%, right? There should be like a 99% overlap on what we think. So if we see there's major disconnect in how we're going to address the problem, what does that mean? It means we're not looking at the same problem. It means I have information I failed to share. It means you have information that I failed to ask for. And that's what it was in this case. What it was in this case is this house wasn't the clean, nice house that we had dealt with the day before. It was a hoarder house. We couldn't get our tech through. We were, it, the CQB was just messed. There was the angle, they just couldn't clear it properly. He wasn't confined to the bedroom. He had full range of the house. That was different information that he received from a containment element than I had. And we had failed to communicate that point. So when I started spending more time with the team getting out, it's like, wait a second, these guys are absolute pros. If they're saying something that doesn't make sense, it doesn't mean they're saying something that doesn't make sense. It means there's a disconnect in information sharing here. It's a huge red flag. I look for it all the time now. And I feel like that empty chair principle is a key to achieving that. I think it is, absolutely. I think that's that's absolutely the case. Um, because you're building relationships with people so that you can appreciate their perspective. Um, and you know, like, hey, these aren't incompetent people. They're, these are super competent people that know what they're doing. So if they're suggesting something that's different from what I'm thinking, why, why is that? And so this is why humility is the most important quality in the leader because our default human condition there is, is to say, well, if you and I disagree about something, it's, well, you're an idiot and I know best. You know, and, and so I'm going to crush you and you need to just get on board with my way and see things my way. And the, the, 
when you, what you truly recognize is what good leadership looks like is when I approach the problem as if, hey, Kevin disagrees with me on this. Why is that? What, what does Kevin see that I don't? What does Kevin see that I don't? What, what am I missing here? Let me go ask Kevin. And if, if I do that, then I'm approaching. Then the question isn't a suggestion, right? Then the, then the suggestion isn't an, an order. Um, it's, it's actually a real earnest question that I want an answer to of like, hey, Kevin, talk me through that plan. I, I'm, what am I missing here? I, I want to understand you know, where you're coming from. And, and this is, it's a real question. I'm really seeking information so that I can understand why you're right and I'm wrong. That's what I want to understand. And, uh, and so if you approach a problem like that, it is, you're, you're, you're so much more likely to get that problem solved because I, you, maybe there's something that you didn't see that I see. And, and so you actually come to see my perspective, but we're not going to have a clash of egos. You're not going to be getting defensive. I'm actually coming to you to see why I'm actually wrong. Um, and so I ask some earnest questions. Maybe you realize that there's something that you didn't see that, that, uh, you know, that, that I did. And so you change your plan accordingly and then you go execute and it's your plan. I never even told you to change the plan. You just simply change the plan based on new information that you didn't realize was available. So it's a, it's a real trap that I think leaders fall into when, you know, when I hear things like, well, the front line doesn't get it. These guys just don't get what's going on. You know, they don't understand it. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a complete lack of extreme ownership when you hear that, right? It's, a, it's, it's obviously a glaring lack of extreme ownership to say, well, it's all their fault. They don't understand. Like, well, who's, who's responsible? My, I mean, if, if a leader says that to me, my, my response immediately is like, well, who's responsible for helping them understand <laughs> that's actually your job as a leader so if they don't understand it it's a hundred percent your fault and uh, and you just have to get a job with that but so often what you don't realize is that hey you know leaders saying we should do this or we should do that but they don't actually realize what that means you know to to the the troops that are executing that that there's maybe there's some challenges they didn't realize were there you know maybe there's some challenges they didn't understand there's a reason that people are saying hey we can't execute it that way and here's why. And if you come in there, you know, if you come in there trying to, you know, smash people around and saying, hey, what are you guys doing to land this? Why don't you execute? Instead of asking the questions, you know, you just burn so much leadership capital needlessly um, and you alienate people, you know, develop bad relationships. Um, it's a real problem, you know, for the team. And it's so easy to come in there with an open mind to say, what am I missing? Help me understand why you want to do that. Okay, cool. It sounds great. Execute, you know. Yeah. So, you know, that asking earnest questions we applied that in a way that completely changed how we were briefing our operations plans. Um, I, I think it's pretty cool. And uh, like, this is something when I teach SWAT commander courses, this is, the, this is one of my, like, Hey, this is a good way to, this is a good way to do it. So what used to happen is the team would plan, you know, you say, Hey guys, uh, you know, we've got a call. Here's the drug dealer. We have to arrest. Here's the murder guy, whatever. They're going to go, the team's going to go plan the call, the plan, the operation. And they're going to come back and they're going to brief me and I'm going to approve their plan or not. So they're going to come back and they're going to say, okay, we want to do A, B, and C, and D. And what I used to do is I would say, well, you know, what about this other option? And what about this other option? And what I'm trying to say is like, you know, okay, you want to do a, this as like a stronghold assault. Well, why don't we just follow the guy and take him away? Or why don't we, you know, kind of do a roof? So I'm going to say, what about, you know, a surveillance option? What people take that as is they get defensive. They think I'm questioning them, right? And and there's a, there's a, so, so they don't, they're like very guarded in how they're going to brief you because they want to limit their exposure to those. What about, well, what about this? And what about that? And I can only ask the number of questions of options I know about. It's like, you know, maybe I know three options, but that guy knows five, but I'm only going to ask three questions because that's all I know. There's a better way to ask questions. And the way I ask questions now is I just say, 
Hey man, tell me about the other options you thought about and why you chose this one. Now it's open. It's an earnest question. And now he'll be like, Hey, well, here's, you know, option A, this is why we just, we didn't go with this one. Here's the surveillance option. Here's why we didn't go with this one. Here's this option. Here's why we didn't go with this one. And at the end of the day, I'll be like, you like 99% of the time, I'm like, this guy's a pro. He thought of everything. He thought of more than I would have thought of. I have absolutely no trouble signing this off. And so I get to the same point I did with all my what about questions, but instead of making him on the defensive, he's now demonstrating his competence. People love doing that. They love demonstrating, hey, this is all the work the team has put into this. And now they get to demonstrate it to the boss. And and, and I can be like, hey, man, this is awesome. Once in a while, like 0.01% of the time, they'll realize they forgot an option. And as they're talking through, they'll go, oh, we forgot to look at this other option. You know what? We're going to go run that scenario. We'll be right back. How much leadership capital did I expend? It was a self-discovered error, like zero. You gained leadership capital. You gained leadership capital rather than expend it. Yeah, and and I still am not painted in a corner. So maybe it's a new a new, uh, new team leader and he forgot a certain option. I still have the option of saying, hey, well, you know, did you think about this option? So I can still provide some guidance if it's needed, but I'm going to ex- completely... Um, uh, completely use up all the all the information they have to offer me beforehand. So I don't I don't want to I don't want to paint myself in a corner. I'm not going to put them on the defensive. Like it's just a much better interaction. So I did that. It's funny the guys laugh because they know they know because now that I teach it they they know that's my little trick. But it worked like a charm. Like it still works like a charm. But now they know why I say it that way. But it was just like an instant change from you know the boss to you know they just question us and they just want, you know want to limit what we're doing they don't understand the challenges of the operation and stuff, to like hey yeah we're going to explain everything we're doing like we're going to put this on display how how great the team did in planning this and these are all the breaching options here's the challenges and here's this and here's that it's a it's a wonder to behold i, I love it i love asking questions that way it's so much better than how i was used to doing it I think what's powerful about that, Kevin, is the, is the recognition of like, what's the perspective of the person that you're talking to, you know? And this is what's so hard, I think, for, for leaders of like, well, he's getting all defensive. I just asked a question. That's his problem. You know, instead of, hey, well, how is he interpreting that question that I'm asking? And, uh, you know, it's, it's what, what, what is, what I'm saying, what I intend to say, like, if I can see the perspective of the other person that I'm talking to, you know? We talk about the the post operation debrief and the need to to talk about what you did right, what you did wrong, what you did to fix it. I do that all the time. I do that in my with my family. Um, and when I say, uh, as I'm talking to my my wife about, hey, you know, we should do this better next time. Like she instantly hears you. She hears you. <laughs> you need to do this better next time. Even if I didn't intend it that way. So it's really hard. Like it, it takes you have to detach and think. Okay, what's 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 her perspective on this? What's her perspective on this? And how is that going to be interpreted if I, if I say this? Which is, even if I didn't even mean it that way, I'm actually talking, here's what I'm going to do different next time. But, and if I say it that way, it's a totally different outcome. You know, of like, uh, you know, she'll be like, yeah, you know, I could probably do this better to, you know, help, help with the kids or make sure you understand where you need to go. So it, it just, the power of, of, you know, of, of figuring out how to ask the right questions, um, you know, what it really means to ask earnest questions. I think when you think about what's the goal, the goal is that you have them, your, your, your team leaders are considering all of the options. That's, that's what you want. You want to make sure they're considering all the options, not just so focused on one that they didn't forget about something. Um, and so that's what good leadership looks like. But if, if they're pushing back on that, or are you getting defensive, then you're not doing it right. And I get that all the time for people where they're like, you know, I just asked a question. I mean, they just got all defensive. You know, it's like, let's, let's, so you're saying it's all their fault. That's what you're saying. Like, you, how did you ask the question? And, and so that's where we kind of, if we can go into a role play scenario, 
then you realize like, oh, okay. They took that in a totally different manner that I maybe didn't even intend it to. Um, there's one thing more that you can do, I think, to, uh, to help you as you ask questions there, though. And that is if you have focused on getting out of your office, spending time with those folks prior to building a really, really good relationship with people so that they know that your whole goal is to set them up for success, that you trust them, that you, you know, you, all you want to do is actually help them. It's a lot harder for me to get defensive in that situation, right? I, I, you know, like Kevin thinks he knows everything and he's trying, like Jocko would come up and ask me some questions, you know, about, about an operation and maybe, Hey, did I think about this or I think about that? I know he wants me to be successful. I know he wants to mitigate the risk of my team. I know he wants me to, you know, be able to accomplish this mission, but bring everybody back. Um, you know, that's what he wants. He wants me to be successful. So if, if we have a really good relationship, you can actually be more direct in the, in those cases, um, without people getting defense. I'm not saying you should be, you should always take that more indirect approach. Um, and, and that's, that you are, but if you focus as a leader on, on, on building those relationships, um, and prioritize on the new team leader that's coming in that maybe you don't know as well or don't have a, a, as long-standing a relationship with, then that, that can help you, I think, uh, achieve that outcome so that they know, like, hey, what does Kevin want? He wants us to win. He wants us to bring everybody home safe. He wants us to go accomplish the mission. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly it, and that's something that we try to, you know, you try to say, guys, I'm trying to protect the team. I don't, you know, we don't want to get anyone hurt. We don't want to lose a charge here. We don't want to get you guys sued. We don't want to get the agency. We want to protect the program so that our team can be around for a long time. But you talk about building relationships. What I've found is just changing those two words from what about to tell me about, like such a small change. When we do like, you know, 50 planned ops that way, and then we get a rapidly evolving you know, unplanned op, like, and I'll give you the example. We got, we got all of a sudden the phone rings, surveillance teams out. Hey, there's a murder suspect. He's in this house. We need you guys to get him, get him right now. Cause he's very mobile. Oh, and holy crap. Uh, another guy who we think is another hitter, uh, another hitman, he's in the house as well. So we have to roll on that. How much time, like we, for another, you know, if we had a, a day or two to plan it, we could have those conversations. Now we have minutes to plan. We, we can't plan it. But because me and the TL have made that, have formed that relationship, I know his thought process. I don't have to ask a lot of questions. I have all the confidence in the world. And I'll give you, like, that's an actual example. And what happened in that case is we rolled up on scene. Well, we didn't know that the guy had a very sophisticated uh, surveillance system pointing at, at the most likely, like, it's like on his roof, like on a mast. Uh, we didn't get it. It didn't get picked off. It wasn't on a mast, it was on his chimney. Um, but he had identified the vehicles coming in. A lot of times they have cameras, but they're not that great or they're not monitoring. This guy was monitoring. Luckily, we had pre-infiltrated some, some containment elements, so they were able to intercede. He went back into the house. Him, the other suspect, and a whole bunch of other people all fled in different directions, him on a motorcycle. And our team was able to respond to that just seamlessly without me saying a word. Like, I think I gave a thumbs up because the guys were like, we're going to gas. Like he, he wasn't asking, can we gas? It's like, we're going to gas. Cause the guy went back in the house and there's, it was a, it was very dynamic because we were able to stop his egress on the motorcycle by hitting with 40 mil impact. And he went back into the house. Um, so he's still in the house, but now he's got, yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a, it was very dynamic, very, very dynamic, multiple squirters everywhere. And they just said, we're going to gas thumbs up. That was the, the, the entirety of my command decision and presence on this rapidly evolving call with two like murderers is a thumbs up. And I was completely comfortable with it. But why? It's because we'd invested in those, all those conversations beforehand. So, and it, that's a relationship. Like, 
that's the power know. of relationships and that's the power of decentralized command. And that's that's a, a great example of the silent leader, right? Of which that's the leader that you know, we all, there, there's so much just misconception about there of like, what does leadership look like? We picture a leader as the person that's up in front of the group that's barking orders and telling everyone what to do and directing everything and has all the answers. Um, and yet what we, what good leadership actually looks like is being that silent leader that doesn't have to say anything because you've got a well-trained team that knows what to do and is making things happen. And that way you can stay detached so you can start thinking about the next step and the next step and the next step and vectoring resources their way and helping them out uh, in, in a way because you don't have to you don't have to worry about the tactical details of things. You can think strategically because your team has got it. And and I think that's 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 a, a awesome testament to, to your leadership, Kevin. Yeah. Well you, you talk about that that tendency to kind of just want to hold on very tightly to operations. Um, I would say that has been one of the major changes we've made to our operations is just instituting that decentralized command on operations. And I'll give you an example. Um, the way I grew up in the team is when we were on a call, we had to ask the commander for every little thing that we wanted to do. So it was as if we were chess pieces and the commander was the chess master and he was moving the pieces around the board in order to win the game. And so when I became a commander, that's what I did because that's what I'd learned. And so you know, we'd go to do these search warrants at houses and the guys would radio back. And I'd be at the command post, which is like around the corner, right? And because uh, I'm there trying to, you know, I'm detached. There's other considerations going on. I've got the broader picture. But they would radio back to me and say, hey, this guy's got surveillance cameras on the on the corner of his house. We want to knock him out with a 40 mil impact round, which is just like a little sponge round, right? It's not hazardous or anything. And I would have to say yes or no. So I was like, kept, okay, yeah, go ahead and go ahead. I'd never say no. And then I was like, why are they asking me this? Like, I can't see the house. I can't see where they are. I can't see the camera. I can't see the backdrop. I have zero information to make this decision. Why am I the one making the decision? It, it made no sense. And the only possible explanation is I didn't trust them to make that decision. That wasn't actually the case. It's just, that was the system we had, but what else does that say? But I don't trust you to make the decision or I haven't trained you enough to make that decision. Of course, it's, it's not, I mean, that's not the case. But it feels like when you're the commander, it feels like when people are asking you those things, it feels like you have control, but it's an illusion of control. You're not controlling anything. You don't have situational awareness. Like, so we, what we did is we instituted a lot of more decentralized command. And essentially what we said is, okay, look, who should make the decision? You know, for, you know, we have different contingency plans. If this happens, we're gonna do this. If this happens, who should institute this? Who should be the decision maker on whether or not we're gonna implement this contingency plan? And we say it should be the person who has appropriate level of situational awareness and the time to make and implement the decision. Like if you have to radio back to the command post and then by the time I get to you the answer, the opportunity's gone, it doesn't matter how much information I have, I'm, I'm useless to you. you know, or if, you know, if I don't have the information to make the decision, I, I can't help you. When we instituted that, you know, we would pre-brief it. Hey, if there's any cameras, we're gonna hit, knock them out. Okay, cool. What we still want to do though, and this is this is a direct, I remember that Jocko said, like I asked him a question and he, this was his advice, was he said, hey, Kevin, when you are, uh, hopefully I'll, I'll quote him correctly or reasonably correctly. He said, when you're instituting decentralized command, the one thing you have to look at or be careful of is if you have multiple elements moving independently is maintaining awareness of where they are in the, in the space. Because if not, they can work their way into a crossfire situation, a blue on blue. I realize this can happen like in an administrative environment. If I, if you know, if you're looking at, at, you know, new carbines and he's looking at new optics, 
well, we better get systems that are going to work together, right? And if there's too much decentralized command, or if I, or I can decentralize, institute decentralized command, but if I don't have awareness of what you're doing, and you don't have awareness of what you're doing, if we're not communicating, we can work at cross purposes. Well, if you're now talking about, you know, elements maneuvering and containment points, and it's like one guy's on the front, and one guy's on the back, well, now you're in a crossfire. So we're still big on communication. So the guys will say, we're going to knock that camera out with a 40 mil. So when I hear it, it's not like, oh, there's gunshots. I'm not, I'm, I understand what's happening. Or when they say their intention, I'm like, I'm like, realize, oh, if they knew what I knew, they wouldn't say that. So it's a red flag to me. It's like, it's an, it's an ability for me to say, wait a second, I failed to tell you this thing. Because if you knew this thing, you wouldn't have said that thing that you said you're going to go do. That has dramatically improved our ops planning cycle. So we, because everything had to be so tightly controlled, we were really slow approving ops. And guess what? Investigative units weren't calling us because it, it was too much hassle. We'll just do it ourselves. When we got to calls, it was, we weren't uh, very responsive to emerging situations because everything had to go back to the command post for approval. So, you know, we dramatically improved our flexibility on calls and that resulted in like a tangible increase uh, in the number of calls we're getting. So, in the SWAT world, the number of big calls you miss is a, is a measure of how relevant you are. Nothing is worse than you show up at work and realize there was the big call last night and someone didn't call you. And it, it, it's when we were talking about this in our command class and uh, everyone experiences this. And so we took the stance, uh, sorry, I'm on a tangent here, but <laughs> we took the stance for a while. We're like, oh, those guys aren't calling us and it's their fault. And you know, we, we need this new form that they should fill out for every warrant. And we need this new policy that makes them call us. And we tried all those things. They didn't work. Like the phone, you know, we still got lots of calls, but we were missing some big calls that we, we should have been called for. And so, okay, guys, let's put an extreme ownership lens on this. Why aren't people calling us? It's either they didn't think to call us, they didn't know to call us, or they didn't want to call us. All three of those things are our fault. If they didn't think to call us, it means we're just so detached and out of, we're out of mind for them. We are irrelevant to them. We don't have a relationship with them where they don't even know we exist. If they didn't know to call us, it means we failed to educate them on what, benefits we can provide, what service we provide to them. We're going to surge resources to you. It's going to cost you $0 in overtime because we're, we come with our own budget and we have all these expertise and you're going to be able to peel off patrol resources to handle the calls that are coming in. Like who wouldn't want that? And if they didn't want to call us, it means we have a bad relationship with us. It means something happened in the past. Maybe they ran into a SWAT ego or something, or maybe we didn't do a good job documenting our action and we've jeopardized their investigation, but we made some mistake and they don't want to call us now. Well, we can fix those three things. So when we fixed, when we approached it that way, in three years, we've doubled our call volume. Like, I, I just think like, imagine a, a company saying, I doubled my sales with zero overhead increase. Like, like that's, it's, it's substantial. And it still happens where we miss a call now and then, but we're able to address it um, because it's, it's our failure. So it's like, that is in my view, like, just a direct application of the extreme ownership capability. Okay, we're causing this problem. How do we solve it? That's a powerful and uh, tangible uh, measurement, you know, of, of results there. Definitely, you know, we say effective or ineffective, as you said previously, uh, and that's what we meant. But the, but the right, meant the, the, right yeah. the right interpretation of that. Yeah, All right, I got sure. it now, man. <laughs> that's uh, that's awesome, Kevin. Uh, I think that's it's it's the opposite, right, of what most people are going to do. It's the opposite of like, oh, these they just look they didn't call us. It's their fault, you know. Um, and you can't control those other people. You can control you. And when you take action to fix those problems, it makes all the difference in the world. And that's just, that's living proof. Uh, and that's outstanding that, that you guys have done that. 
you know, we talked about culture earlier and, and, you know, you clearly have some extraordinary culture on your team, right? You have some very talented people. You got, you have the best of the best from the Canadian law enforcement that are, are part of your team. Um, you know, you talked about bringing this program in. I think it's awesome that you put it out there voluntarily, uh, you know, for 30 of, of, of your guys and then 30 more. So we've, you've had 60 total go through that program now. How has that impacted the culture of your team? You know, what have you seen as a, as a result of, of putting them through this Extreme Ownership Academy program? Um, you know, how's that helped? How's it, has it maybe not improved in some, some ways? Like, what would you want to see better uh, in that program? What are, what, are, you know, what are ways that you can continue to build that culture? Yeah, it, I think one of the reasons this program was so successful for us is because we had a, like a lot of the elements already, just by you know virtue of where our program came from and our, you know the different teams we interact with. You know, we're big on debriefs. We're big on humility. We're big on like, I remember my first day on the team. I, you know, I, we went to the range and I missed a shot. I made an excuse, and the sergeant looks at me and goes, "Yeah, we love excuses here." And I was like, "Oh yeah, okay. like it's my first." I was like. I like these guys. Okay, got it, right? No problem. Um, so th- there was a lot of synergy that already existed. Um, I think one of the things that we've done a lot better on is we actually, this is funny, we kind of prided ourselves on being just a little rogue, you know? So if there was some, you know, hey guys, you know, there's this new online training course, everyone's got to do it. We probably weren't going to, you know, it's like, hey man, we're, we're going to be at the range. We're going to do CQB rips. Like we're not going to do your, your silly course on, you know, whatever thing of the day is, is important now to management. So it's like a checkbox. Like we're not going to do that. Or, oh, someone needs this report. Like we just kind of weren't good at that stuff. We realized that that was impeding our ability to lead up. And the other thing we did is, and this was, this, this was like, I had did this. I loved this move is I would try to gain leadership capital by vilifying senior leadership right? Us against them guys. Like I can be, you know, I can get some team cohesion by making the boss, the bad guy, you know, they don't understand what it's like. And you know, this stupid policy comes in and, you know, got, you know, we're not either, we're not going to do it and just make them go away or God, we'll do this. But, and what I realized is like, well, eventually I'm going to need the guys to do something that maybe they don't agree with. And what strategy, what culture did I teach them is the appropriate way to respond when someone asks you to do something you don't want to do. Right. And then the sergeant, so you, you perpetuate that down all through the chain. And we just created this, you know, this negative thing. We fix that when the vehicle checks come in. So, you know, headquarters, like, hey guys, uh, your vehicle maintenance checks. Uh, have you, you know, have you, are you up to speed on these things? Our, our unit is always hundred percent. We stay off the radar for that stuff. That's something new we've done because then when we want something or need something, we've got all the credibility in the world. And we had a very significant operation a little while ago that was, uh, resulted in about a million dollars worth of property damage, um, shots fired. Like it was just absolutely hairy. I got zero questions from my management about it because we just had built that trust, you know? So, and it doesn't hurt that my boss, when he came into that job, he gave me extreme ownership and that caught me. Like, yeah, I I don't know if you ever read these books. I'm like, bro. (laughs) (laughs) You guys should have been like this. No, I haven't. This is great. (laughs) What's this? You can't, you can't lie. I I don't want you to lie, but you can say like these He's, he's a believer. I, re- but, I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I'm really pleased with where we're at right now. Like, I'm really, really pleased where we're at right now. And I, I was telling you this before, but to, just the team culture we have is um, we had a fitness competition for our annual fitness, you know, annual fitness test. And you, you got to meet the standard. The standard's not that hard. Everyone just blows by it. But we're like, hey, I, how good can we get here? And so we offered a prize. The platoon with the best team, uh, best average score got a prize. And then the best time individual and the most improved time got a, got a prize. 
So the two guys that won best in, improved and best time, you know what they did with their prize money is they uh, bought um, door prizes for their team poker night. So they could have taken it as an individual prize, but instead they they brought it back to the team. So like I see things like that all the time. Now, there's always room for improvement. Um, as far as this leadership training, what we need to do more of is I need I, I need to get off sites more with my leadership team to kind of, you know, because we're always so busy with ops. We need time to build those relationships with each other because we draw on those relationships when the, when it's a hard call and we don't have time to talk and there's you know we draw on that i need to build more of that we've I've, I've not done enough on that i need to do more role playing and tabletop scenario we need to do more education i need to go through the extreme ownership principles and just talk about how we apply it in our environment which is you know it's unique but it's not unique because it's just it's just people um but you know I think that's where we're kind of headed, but I just want to be students, students of the game for, for the long haul. We were talking before about this and you were explaining that, uh, you know, about the, uh, you know, applying budget toward in-person training versus, uh, versus the extreme ownership Academy. Um, and w which one you think is best and why? Yeah. So a contact of mine gave me a call. He said, Hey man, uh, you know, at our, uh, at our department, we've got some money for training. Uh, we want to do some leadership training. Uh, we're thinking of getting a speaker in uh, or uh, an echelon front speaker in or signing guys up for the Extreme Ownership Academy. Which would you recommend? And in my opinion, I said, listen, hands down, it's not even a conversation. It's the academy. The, the return on investment is, I don't know of a higher return on investment of training dollars that I've ever spent, ever. Like, you know, what... It doesn't take long. I can blow through that amount, what that costs per year per guy. We can blow that through on the range, like in 45 minutes. It is absolutely fantastic. Um, and the big benefit is it recognizes that leadership is a skill that is perishable and it must be revisited routinely. You don't get that from a two hour, you know, it's like I wouldn't watch a tennis movie and think I can play tennis, right? Like I would have to go take lessons and revisit it and then practice it. And then I'd be ready for the game. Why would I think I can do that with leadership? Well, if I don't, if I don't realize leadership's a skill, that's why I think I can do it. It's great. I like the talks. I've, I, who I, well, I went to muster, which is fantastic. I've heard Andrew talk. He did a, a keynote for someone. It's fantastic. Raw, like it, it's, it pumps you up and motivates you to, to do, do the work, but you still have to do the work. Uh, and I, so if I, if you have to choose between one, the Academy, if you have to choose, but I also highly recommend muster. Well, obviously I love muster. I love our in-person training events, but I just thought that was a very fascinating perspective that you were sharing because, uh, you know, it's, it requires, you know, it requires a bunch of money to bring us in and do an in-person event. And those in-person events can be very effective to introduce these concepts to people. Um, and we can dive deeper in, into the concepts through, through workshops and we have long range, you know, uh, uh, what we call leadership development alignment programs is we work with, with, with companies, you know, over the course of six months or a year or, or even beyond. But there's something about the Academy where, you know, for the, for the budget that you put forth, it's, 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 you can, you can do this every week. You could do it every day if you could actually afford to do that, but, but it probably makes sense to do it every week or every other week. You know, that, that kind of cadence when we, we put teams onto the Academy where they're going through this stuff together, they're reading a chapter of extreme ownership together. Um, some companies will do it every two weeks. Sometimes companies do it every month. They watch the, you know, the, the 
hour-long interactive course uh, that accompanies that chapter of extreme ownership. Then they get together and they talk about that. They talk about where they're doing this well, where they can improve, how that you know how they can take these concepts and build them better, you know, in, into their organization. And it just helps to really build this stuff into the culture of the team. And uh, you know, Jock often talks about it's it's a it's a leadership gym. The academy is a leadership gym. And you know, you're not going to go to the gym one time. You're not going to do a CrossFit seminar for two days and be in the best shape of your life, right? If you want to be in good shape, you got to train. You got to train multiple days a week for weeks and months and years on end. And so uh, this is a chance where you can actually do that. You can do it every week. You can do it at your convenience when your guys can get to it. Um, and, and I think you know for, for the investment, it's just it's awesome to hear. Um, it's awesome to hear your take on, on what a return on investment that actually is, because, you know, for us, the measure that we choose, right, to, to, of whether or not we're effective, it's, 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 is that, is there impact to the team, right? We're only ineffective or effective, and we want to deliver impact to the teams that we're actually working with. So, um, if we're not delivering that kind of return on investment, you know, for teams, if we're not actually able to help build these concepts into the culture of your team, then we want to make our, our training programs even better. We want, we want to be more effective and what we're actually trying to do. So that's, uh, that's awesome feedback to hear. Um, but I think it's, it's very interesting because a lot of times people, they're really focused on, well, it's in-person training, in-person training. And, and I think sometimes there's doubts on like, well, it's online. How, how effective can online training possibly be? Um, and so I thought that was a very interesting perspective. It's funny. Well, for me, as we've been discussing, I don't learn these things super easily. It's not innate to me. Like I completely misunderstood reading the book. So I need to hear it. I need to see it applied maybe in a in a role-playing scenario. And then I need to let it roll through my head a bit. And then I need to try to apply it and kind of screw it up. And then I need to revisit it. And then eventually I'll get it. And then what I like to do is I like to I like to I like to write those after action reports. Those are mostly about that solidifies in my mind the lesson. I can write about this now. It's it's, it's solid in there. And then we can go to the next lesson. I, I can't look, you go to an in-person, like if I went to a keynote. It, it's like if I watch that Arnold movie on Netflix right now, like, yeah, it makes me interested in going to the gym. It's not the same as going to the gym. It pumps me up, it gives me a few tools. Oh, maybe I can try this or try that, but it's just not the same. And uh, yeah, the online, like I was skeptical of online because it's like, oh, it's through a screen. And, but it's like, no, like I've legit asked straight questions to you, to Jocko, to, you know, like I've had direct feedback on my specific questions. It's been fantastic. Like, it's hard to quantify the value. It's been really good. That's great to hear it. And that's, that's what we want to create. I mean, it's what's, what's been awesome for us is that, you know, our, our, our economy scale is, is limited. You know, we only have a, we don't, you know, we have about a dozen instructors. And so uh, it's awesome. It's not just me and Jocko anymore. We have a bunch of really, very talented uh, leadership instructors that we can send out to places. There's still only a dozen of them. So we can only be so many places at one time. And, you know, when we can, when we can pull together hundreds of leaders from uh, across the United States, across Canada, across countries around the world that, uh, that can be talking about these leadership concepts, talking about a particular challenge, uh, you know, how to apply this, you know, this concept to solve this challenge and then follow up with them via a, a, a sit rep that we can talk. How's it going? How can we make, do we need to make some adjustments? Um, you know, that's, that's what we want to do is, is be able to drive maximum impact to give people the solutions to solve their problems through leadership. Well, that, that's the other benefit of it is I love interacting with the other attendees in the academy, the other troopers. And I've had like some fantastic conversations. There's a guy, I get along well with him and he was having a problem. He like runs like a hardware business. 
hardware business. Like that's so different from a SWAT team. He lists this problem that was the exact same problem, like exact same problems. I could have like just crossed out the names and put uh, put our name on it. It was just fantastic. So we, you know, I reached out to him on LinkedIn. It's like, hey man, like we've got the same problem. We had this great conversation about it. So you you form these, you know, meaningful relationships with people that uh, that, that help you. And it's nice to see other people you know, it's not like everyone's good at this, but me, it's like, no, like this stuff's hard. And these are people who are working on it and we learn together. So I, I love the troopers. Like it's, it's, it's neat to see it, especially get some, get some contact with them outside the Academy. It's a lot of fun. It's always reassuring to know that, uh, uh, other people don't just get this stuff innately, right? That, that everybody <laughs> actually has their struggles. Everybody has their strengths and weaknesses. Everybody has things that, you know, that they need to work on. Um, what's always, what's interesting for me too, is, how easy, when someone comes on to ask a question on a live session, how easy is it for you to see what the answer is to their problem? Initially, it was really hard. Like initially I'd be like, oh, I know that. And I would come up with an answer in my head and then it would be completely different. But as I'm getting more experience with it, I can kind of, I kind of translate into, oh, this is similar to the problem we had. And so I'm starting to get a little bit better, but it's still like a lot of times I'm like, that's a good question. I have no clue how to handle it. So that's awesome because now I get to be exposed to a problem that I haven't faced yet. And now the next time I face it, I'll, I'll kind of know an answer. It's perfect. Like, but yeah, I don't know. That's outstanding. Well, it's, I think as you learn this stuff, oftentimes, you know, just as you said, right, people, we, we, we can misinterpret things, right? Or, or we, I, one of the, we, you know, the joke that people, you know, people take the like, what would Jesus do and, and replace that with Jocko? I, def, I recommend, highly recommend you don't replace uh, Jesus with Jocko. Um, uh, but, but, uh, this is, and Jocko would, I think would recommend that as well, but people would, people would say like, what would Jocko do is kind of a joking manner. And then they would, they would do thinking that this is what Jocko would do in a situation. They would do the opposite. They would do the absolute opposite of what he would do. And because they're kind of misinterpreting things or just making assumptions about he's going to go in there and smash everyone. He looks like an ax murderer. He's going to, you know, he's going to smash people and just, you know, run roughshod over there and hold them accountable and, you know, make sure that they hold the line because he's all about discipline. He's never going to give an inch on these things. And of course, you know, that's, that's really the opposite of how Jocko leads, right? That's the opposite of what good leadership actually looks like. So, um, so that can lead some people astray. And it's, it's interesting that you might, you know, have the opposite or, or maybe don't have the answer to, to a question. But as you start to learn this stuff, what I kind of find fascinating is that it seems to me that I see that leaders start to, they start to plug in answers in the chat before I even, you know, answer the question so that other leaders are seeing other people's problems and, and they have an answer to the problem. The, the solution is apparent to a lot of the, the leaders that are on the, you know, those Academy live sessions. And, um, and it's, and yet they might have a very similar challenge that they don't have the solution for. So I think that, that just shows me the power of detachment that when, you know, when I'm struggling with an issue, you know, and I'm two, two, you know, two inches away from this problem, it's really hard for me to see the, the solution. Where, the, where it's probably pretty easy for you to see the solution. Whereas, you know, you come to your problem and you're really frustrated with the interaction you have with someone on your team. It's very easy for me to, to see the solution and, and, and uh, you know, offer that solution to you. Uh, you go, wow, how did they see that? It's amazing. And it's simply just, you know, the power of detachment. And so we can all do that. It's, 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 a, it's an incredibly powerful tool. It's why listening is such a skill because you're, you're staying detached instead of diving into the problem. Um, you know, you're gathering, as you said, right, you're gathering reconnaissance about the, about the operation that you're, you're, you're listening, you know, you're, you're just observing, you're staying detached before you dive in there. It's so much easier to actually 
see what the solutions are going forward so you can implement a solution effectively to solve that problem. You know, it's funny. The other thing you realize with, with all those questions on the academy is that nowhere is perfect. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, I know I'm certainly guilty of it where we'll have some problem or some frustration on the team and I'll get frustrated by it. I'm like, I bet those guys, you know, on this other team that, you know, they don't have that problem. It's like, well, they either do have that problem or they have a different problem that we don't have. And it's like, you're, there's no, there's no end. This is not an end game scenario. Like it's an infinite game. Like you will be constantly improving forever and nowhere is perfect. And I, I liked it. It makes it a little easier when I see, no, everyone does have frustrations because we are trying to get better and getting better takes work and it means we're changing things and, and, and we're never going to stop doing that thing. So we're always going to have to like, we're never going to be able to sit with our feet up. And when I see other leaders also not sitting with their feet up, it sort of motivates me to dig in and not be like, rest on our laurels. Like, oh, look at all the progress we've made. And they go, oh, we're, we're good now. It's like, no, we're not. Like I could list you right now, five big things that I, we want to improve on, like that are important things that I think are gaps. We're never, per- like I could list 20 things that we did m- massive improvements on. There's still those five. When we do those five, there's gonna be another five and another five and it's never gonna end. Um, and I just find it's, it always takes energy to do that. And you always have to be willing to do the hard work to do it. And it's good motivation. Iron sharpens iron. And there's a lot of iron on that call. No doubt. No doubt. Well, man, I, I, uh, I appreciate what you do, Kevin. I appreciate your leadership. And uh, Jocko and I have said for many years now uh, that, that, you know, our first responders, our law enforcement officers have the, the hardest job in the world. And uh, it's, uh, I think that's, it's only become harder. Uh, I think it's never been harder to be in law enforcement than it is t- today. And it's also never been more important. So I appreciate your leadership and all that you and your teammates do uh, to put their lives on the line. And I think what's extraordinary about you is that you've not only, not only invested in yourself to learn this, uh, you know, these, these, these leadership skills and, and to get better as a leader and develop those leadership skills. But then you brought that into your team and helped build that into the culture of your team. And now, you know, you're here training other SWAT leaders and sharing the leadership lessons that you've learned uh, to better help them so that they can be more effective in what they're trying to do, you know, as they go out there and police their communities and try to keep their communities safe. And uh, I just can't thank you enough for what you do uh, and for you taking and sharing those leadership lessons as far and wide as you can. Yeah, well, you know what, I I say, you know, our team's lucky we get a lot of operations and we're just willing to share our scars because we've learned some lessons the hard way and it's and it's an honor to be able to do that and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to do that you know, both at the NTUA class we're doing now and, and in this form as well. And I, I really am a big supporter of extreme ownership paradigms. Uh, there, like, because we made the changes we did to our team, there are operations that succeeded that may not have otherwise succeeded. There are murderers in jail now that otherwise would have likely been able to escape because we would have been too slow. Uh, you know, there was too much centralized command. There would have been issues that the lack of extreme ownership would have caused that would have resulted in operational failure. And, you know, like that's pretty cool to think about. Like because of the change we made, we there's people in jail now that otherwise wouldn't be because they would have gotten away and probably gone on to kill someone else. And that's a family member that someone would have lost or, you know, who knows what sort of chaos would have, would have ensued. So there's tangible benefits to this that we were able to do. So, you know, I'm a big proponent of more leadership training in law enforcement. I think it's needed. I think it's a gap. Like you said, it's a difficult job in the current climate. Leadership's needed now more than ever. And anything I can do to 
sort of steer people uh, to the right sources, I, I'm, I'm willing to do it, even if it means, you know, admitting the, the, the silly mistakes I've made along the way and the embarrassment of, uh, of my misperceptions. But well, I appreciate it. We got two 300-page uh, books uh, <laughs> about all the mistakes that we made. So um, that's uh, I think I think you, you, that's the best way you can prevent people from making mistakes is to share share your own failures and lessons learned, you know, with others. So I appreciate you you coming on here to do that. Any any final thoughts you want to share with the audience? No, man. Just get on the academy. I appreciate it, Kevin. Well, thanks for being here with us, man. You made the long track down from uh, Vancouver to be here. And uh, awesome of you to, to, to make time to come on here and, and share your thoughts with everybody. All right. Thanks, Leif. Really appreciate it.